Hello, I'm Keith Frankish, and welcome to Mind to Mind, a podcast about the mysteries of the mind and the people who are trying to solve them. My guest today is Pete Mandick. Pete is Professor of Philosophy at William Patterson University of New Jersey. He's a philosopher of mind who works at the intersection between philosophy and the cognitive sciences. And he's particularly interested in naturalistic accounts of consciousness and intentionality. Pete is the author of This is Philosophy of Mind, an introduction, Key Terms in Philosophy of Mind. He's co-author of Cognitive Science, an Introduction to the Mind and Brain, and he's co-editor of Philosophy on the Neurosciences, a reader. He has also written a large number of scholarly articles and book chapters, many of them about consciousness, and we'll be digging into the details of the views expressed in those papers in the course of this interview. So, Pete, welcome. Hello, hello. Thank you for having me on. Uh, very happy to have you as a guest. I think we, our views probably overlap quite a bit. Um, so one of the things that, that I would like to do in this interview is to, is to, is to tease out your views and see, see if there are points on which we disagree. But that's for later. Let's begin by just getting to know you a little bit. So who is Pete Mandick? And how did you get into philosophy um, and philosophy of mind in particular? I know you did your graduate studies in the 1990s at Washington University in St. Louis, which uh, had and still has a very strong philosophy neuroscience psychology program. What drew you to that? How did you, how did you decide that you wanted to be a philosopher of cognitive science? I, I decided at a really uh, early age but it, but it took many years before I was, you know, I had the vocabulary to realize that that's what I was interested in. So as early as say age seven, I was already doing what in retrospect was some pretty heavy duty philosophical thinking. So I remember, um, you know, I, I should mention, like, I, I didn't really have any exposure to educated people. I was, I had a, a very working class upbringing. My, mm -hmm. my parents were, um, you know, they didn't go to college. My dad didn't even finish high school. Uh, to their credit though, they exposed me to lots of books. There were lots of books around and, and my dad was very into self-improvement and would bring books home. Like for example, popularizations of quantum mechanics by Isaac Asimov. And, and there are always books around, this is the seventies. So we had lots of like transcendental meditation and, and, uh, games people play i am i'm okay you're okay sorts of you know do-it-yourself psychiatry mm -hmm. uh books about electronics and and einstein and so at a really early age i remember thinking that uh number one science really if anyone knows anything about anything it's these scientists and uh um i remember being dissatisfied at school when they would talk about things like history because that just seemed I wasn't putting it in this terminology, but it just seemed so contingent to me. <laughs> Who cares? Well, who cares about World War II? World War II might have never happened. Um, it didn't have to happen. But science and math, that seems like the real deal. And I remember thinking at like age seven that there ought to be some grand unified theory uh, of science and then further, the ultimate like equations of science themselves should be a priori deducible from something that's logical or, or and or mathematic. I was thinking that at age seven, uh, of, not in those words, 
but that's basically what the, the thought was. And I also remember around the same time, like age eight, um, my, my grandfather, who I was very close with, passed away. And I went through this whole thought about how um, he probably didn't go to heaven that as best as I understood about like the Christian God and, and uh, story that I had been fed, that that was on equal footing with Santa Claus. And, you know, that was bunk. So therefore, uh, as a good scientifically minded eight-year-old, I convinced myself to be an atheist. Um, and I was, you know, left to, to do a lot of these explorations solo. So there's no one saying like, oh, by the way, that's philosophical. I'm just hanging out at the library as a little kid, digesting as much science fiction and science. Um, and also kind of subliminally picking up on a lot of countercultural stuff. I, again, I didn't realize it at the time, but all sorts of stuff was seeping in because my parents were young. They were like literally 19 and 20 when I was born. Um, so I was surrounded by like Led Zeppelin and Pink Floyd records and, and fuzzy black light posters. And I didn't realize at the time they're all smoking pot and, <laughs> but there's just kind of this cultural emphasis on the mind and things that were weird and countercultural and trippy and psychedelic that all kind of, uh, seeped in. Some of it was frightening to me. I remember being like afraid of Led Zeppelin when I was a little, got a little bit older. I thought, oh, this is really cool. Um, when I was in, by the time I made it uh, up to like high school, I did a, a thing that I think a lot of kids do that are intellectual and, and lonely. And that is I try to solve my own problems by hanging out in the psychology section of the library. Mm-hmm. And the sorts of books that were on the shelf at the time had lots of uh, influence from existentialism, a lot of mention of existentialism. That got me wondering, what's that all about? I was attracted to like try to teach myself about Sartre and Nietzsche around this time uh, an English teacher in a high school who later on basically became my mentor in high school she talked me into going to a high school summer camp for philosophy that was uh, held at uh, Indiana University in Bloomington and I talked my parents into it after she talked me into it and so I spent uh, at like at age uh 15, I spent a week basically doing an entire course of introduction to philosophy. And that was the first time I'd ever been on a college campus. First time I'd ever been in a college bookstore. You know, these are pre-internet days. So like a really good bookstore is an amazing thing. And this is where I first got introduced to Dennett and Hofstetter's The Mind's Eye and also Hofstetter's uh, Goodelescher Bach. And those books became my Bibles. Right. For the rest of my life, I mean, I still kind of keep coming back to to Dennett and Hofstetter, but still, it, like, I didn't realize, even though, like, I'm literally hanging out with philosophy graduate students and, and and philosophers, it didn't really make it onto my radar that this is a job. My, um, you know, by this time, my dad had moved from just being a mechanic to being someone who owned his own shop and. Uh, and there was this expectation that I would go into the family business and, and help run the, the family truck repair. Why would you go to college unless you're going to be a doctor or a lawyer? Just never occurred to me that there was a thing, which is as a career, you could do the sort of thing that Dan Dennett and Douglas Hofstadter were doing. It's just never, never made, I never paused to think like, well, 
that book that's awesome those people wrote that because it's their job to write that and you could have that job too if you wanted so um it it wasn't until uh i had graduated from high school and been working for my dad for several years that i was dating a woman who broke up with me because i wasn't college educated that's what it came down to and and Mm -hmm she said in so many words, like, you're obviously a miserable person. Uh, you're smarter than all of my professors that I had in college. I think you're wasting your life. And, um, I just can't be with someone who's like that. And that really, that really inspired me to want to go to college because I didn't want to be lonely. Um, so I went to college and now this is like three years after having been out of high school. And I thought like, well, I have these interests, these like Hofstad or Dennett type interest. How do you make money doing that? I started off as a computer engineer major and learned a lot of uh, programming. I'm very grateful for that year thinking I was going to go into computers, uh, acquired a lot of skills that really served me to this day. And then I, you know, I, I realized like that I was interested in theoretical things that my computer professors didn't care about at all. They're extremely practical people. Um, and, uh, you know, I'm trying to escape from the practical that my dad and the family business is all about the practical. And it's becoming clear to me, uh, that I'm not practical. I thought about psychology. Um, I was, you know, apologies to any psychologists listening to this. I, I just didn't think that they were very smart. Like, I just, I was really disappointed in my psychology professors, but as a, um, like general education requirement, there was this ethics class that I took and the professor, the philosophy professor teaching that class just really blew my mind. And um, part of what blew my mind about it is that everything that he said, all the sorts of stuff we talk about, it just fit. I just, it was like, I was born to do this. (laughs) And, and I, and I, you know, he wasn't rich, but he had a house. He had a car. What else do you need? So that's when I decided, um, okay, I'm not just here to pick up women and, and get a wife. Uh, I want to be a philosophy professor. So that would have been like my uh, sophomore year of college that I decided this is this is what I've been thinking about all, all along. Um, and I, it finally, like I recognized that, yeah, I've been a philosopher since age seven, all that stuff about like how all of reality is a priori deducible or or God certainly uh, doesn't exist. Uh, That was just philosophical thinking and all the, all the science fiction I was absorbing really what I was interested in was the, the philosophical thought experiment aspect of it. It wasn't really about the escapism or like being in love with the plot or characters. It was about ideas. And I wanted to be an idea person who just, just thought about this stuff and talked about this stuff. And, uh, you know, knock on wood, there still will be professional philosophers <laughs> that I get to die of old age, uh, and still there will be philosophers walking the earth. That, that's a terrific uh, origin story, and, and a lot of it resonates with me, actually. Um, it's quite a bit of I left out an important part of the story, and that's um, uh, LSD. Ah. You might think that that's at odds with the rigorous analytic thinking that is supposedly central to, to philosophy isn't that isn't that a how does that fit into this pattern i mean the, the the person who wants to 
understand the world in in clear and well-defined terms and appeals to the sciences how is this this counterculture how is that fitting in with that perspective yeah so this you know this is a period where i was really the most lost in my life the period after high school but before i decided that i was going to go to college to pick up women um i was just really trying to figure out how to live with myself as a working class person. It was my, you know, I, my job was really hard and really boring. And um, I had friends that were my age that were going to college and then they'd come back and they'd have oodles of drugs with them. Mm-hmm. And uh, I already was digesting a lot of like um, new wave science fiction, Philip K. Dick and stuff and, and reading a lot of underground comics. So I was, you know, like Robert Crumb and, and other sorts of heavily drug influenced and, and, and focused, uh, material. And so, uh, when the opportunity to take LSD came up, I jumped on it and, um, and I did it many times. I found it to be very profound. And and one of the things that, um, most struck me about it was this confrontation Mm -hmm. with, um, the mind that I, I, a lot of the hallucinations and all that, the way I metabolized them was that uh, I was seeing things as minded, almost panpsychic. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and I appreciated on some level that all of this, uh, that is very weird and interesting is my mind doing it. Right. Um, and I had the, this just kind of profound feeling of, uh, this is so interesting, uh, <laughs> where this is something like that the mind could do this, right. um, that the mind can present itself to itself in this very weird and intense way. I also, a, a lot of it was just, you know, part of the, the drug itself makes things interesting. It makes you interested. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that feeling of like just being very intensely into something and that further that thing was the mind itself mm-hmm. really stuck with me. And um, I spent a lot of time trying to figure out how, how can I capture that without drugs? Right. right. What was significant about that? What? Because I mean, I'm not going to be someone who just does drugs all the time. In part because, like, I think we all know that's not going anywhere. No one's really pulled that off and <laughs> made a successful lifestyle out of it. But also, like, as many people who've done drugs many times uh, realize, like, you can never really get the first the glory of the first time rapidly fades and the third and the fourth time is diminishing returns. So I really was still, you know, motivated by that initial experience of like, this is the most interesting thing in the world where this means the mind or consciousness or, or that there's life, that the universe is the sort of place that can give rise to this amazing, um, diversity. Uh, and, uh, yeah, so the, the, those LSD experiences, and, and maybe we'll come back to this later too, because a lot, a lot of the experiences I had had very specific sorts of content that still stay with me. I, I think they demonstrate really interesting things about um, how consciousness works. That there's that consciousness can come apart in really interesting ways that people, uh, I think, assume it doesn't. Um, it's but it's decomposable and uh, in very counterintuitive ways um that are illuminating but yeah i psychedelic drugs were a big driver for me to to take this on as like what i think of as the meaning of my life the meaning of my life for the main purpose of my life is to understand the mind some people who don't know your work listening to that might suppose that you're 
into uh, rather alternative views of the mind, or perhaps they think something like idealism, or pan you mentioned panpsychism there. But actually, your view is, is not at all like that. It's um, it, uh, your outlook is a, I, I already mentioned the word naturalistic. I guess I, I assume you'd, you'd adopt the label physicalist, would you? Well, yes. uh, tell me, um, before we actually get into the into the fine details of your view, what, what, what's, what's, how would you characterize your philosophical outlook in broad terms? What, what isms are you prepared to, to tick, to, to sign up to? Yeah, naturalism, physicalism, uh, definitely. Um, I think a lot of people that have a philosophical uh, view on the world come to it with this kind of like Cartesian uh, picture of, um, you know, where the main thing that's exercising them is a kind of epistemological picture of, you know, the problem of external world skepticism. And that wasn't me at all. My earliest, my earliest uh, philosophical thoughts were really kind of coming from this general scientific uh, point of view that I uh, fell in love with at a really early age. I, I earlier mentioned Isaac Asimov. Another person that had a huge influence mm -hmm. on me in the late seventies and early eighties was Carl Sagan. Um, when Sagan's Cosmos was first airing, I would stand by the TV set with my little toy tape recorder and record the audio and then just listen to it over and over and over again. I didn't realize at the time that he was a big pothead and that a lot of Sagan's vision was was in a very serious way uh, interwoven with this kind of psychedelic uh, and countercultural uh, viewpoint. But nonetheless, that Sagan combination of uh, kind of a cosmic point of view, heavily influenced by the sciences, where science is essentially really physics. He, he's an astrophysicist. Um, so, uh, you know, for me, the main picture of philosophy or my main or initial philosophical thoughts have been less epistemological or Cartesian and more like metaphysical. Um, and that it's just take it as given uh, that there is a physical world and that everything has to fit in with that picture. Um, I can understand the Cartesian or the idealist in a, in a kind of theoretical sense of understand, but in the sense of understand of like, I just, I can really live in those shoes. I could, no, uh, for me, you know, um, it, all the interesting philosophical projects are, uh, against the backdrop of just, you know, there's all this science that we're just living in a world, uh, with amazing technologies, it's completely implausible that it's just a dream that there are iPhones. Like I, like I didn't dream that up. There's teams of actual people with incredible physical theories that were able to make iPhones and um, you know, everything else has to somehow be subservient or fit in with that. So these, so when you had these, these wonderful psychedelic experiences, the challenge was they didn't prompt you to think, Oh, this is this is another world, a world that's 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 undescribable by by science, a separate realm. But rather, this is something that the brain. Some, this is some wonderful thing that the brain is able to do. Right. So, for example, one of the um, it, it seems kind of silly now, but at the time, it was a very profound uh, experience. Was I had this this intense while on LSD? I had this intense experience that 
there was a UFO in orbit around the planet Earth and the aliens on the UFO, their thoughts were leaking into mine. Mm -hmm. And so uh, almost as if um, you're on the phone and in someone's conversation, uh, some other conversation comes through the wires. Um, so I'm, I'm hearing these thoughts and, and, um, and uh, on the one hand, it was the most real thing. It was as real as my hand in front of my face that there were these thoughts uh, in my head and that they weren't mine. They were coming from the spaceship, but also I know there's, I know it's, I remember that I just took some LSD. Uh, I, I don't credit at all that it's an actual UFO with actual aliens in it, that, that uh, it just seemed obvious to me that this must be something my brain is cooking up and, and not my soul not my immaterial mind, my brain, that's where the chemicals go. And so it just seemed obvious to me that um, this other stuff that also at the time seemed obvious to me was just an illusion. Um, another experience I had uh, also on LSD was I was watching TV. There was a film on the TV and the film was in German and there were no subtitles. And I had this incredibly intense experience that I understood what the people were saying. By the way, I don't speak German. I, I mean, I mean, I know one or two words of it. I had, the, but I just sat there for, I don't know, about 10 minutes or so, completely convinced that I understood German. It, it was such a powerful feeling. And I knew on some level that, the, no, I don't understand German. Um, and friends of mine that were in the house and also tripping, they, they would come in the room. They're like, what are you doing? I'm like, it's amazing. I'm watching this show and it's like i can understand the german they're like yeah okay and then they walk out of the room no one including myself thought to ask this question so what are they saying if, if you can understand them go ahead tell us in english what they just said no one including myself ever thought to perform that tiny little experiment and and perhaps if we did the spell would right. would be dispelled but uh nonetheless it was incredibly powerful that you could have this illusion of knowing um, it seems right. And I didn't know, I didn't know anything. I didn't know German. And of course we are getting a sort of insight there. We're getting an insight into the ways in which brain functions can, can fractionate and, and dissociate and how you can have a sense of something being real, even when you, even when it's plainly not real. And right. this is, this is at least giving us clues about how the brain must construct our, our sense of reality. And, uh, so it's, there is insight to be gained there, but not by simply trusting it at face value. Right. I mean, if I were to trust it at face value, I would have to trust that I somehow knew German or I have to trust that there are UFOs and you can think someone else's thoughts. Um, but yeah, it seems not at all credible, the, the face value interpretation. But I don't think any, anyone would, would seriously maintain that we should trust those insights from uh, from our own experience but uh, of course many philosophers think there are certain things certain uh, intuitions about your own mind that you really really can trust and that should constrain how we think about the nature of consciousness and and uh, perhaps and I, I think we both agree that we shouldn't trust those intuitions although they may show us something important so maybe that experience with with psychoactive drugs um maybe that was a way into appreciating how unreliable our own intuitions about our minds can be. Yeah, definitely. And um, 
another thing that I think for me sustains that thought as a, a philosophical thought is that early on in, in my college, uh, my philosophical education as a college student, I, I got ta- tapped into Quine by way of um, Putnam. So I, uh, I was really interested in the philosophy of mind. I was taking philosophy of mind with Kathleen Aikens, who's a student of the church lens and, and Dennett. And then she left the university and there was no one in the department at the University of Illinois doing philosophy of mind stuff which is what I really wanted to do. So I would torture my poor metaphysics professor and my poor epistemology professor with philosophy of mind questions that, uh, and at the time the, the metaphysics professor was really into Putnam and we were studying reason, truth, and history and Putnam's model theoretic argument and the brain and the vat argument. And, um, and this problem of how it is that the mind can be about the world not even the skeptical problem of how you can know there's an external world, but this like supercharged version of it, how can you even think about it? Um, That, you know, I rapidly learned that that comes from Quine, uh, or at least a version of that is uh, in Quine's uh, problem with the, you know, determinacy of reference and general skepticism about whether there can be um, in any real sense representations of the world. I got really interested in that and influenced by it. And I, and I found myself really sucked into the, the Quinean viewpoint, which further uh, nailed down once I got into grad school at uh, the philosophy neuroscience psychology program at Washington University in St. Louis, where just about all of my professors there were hardcore Quinians. So one of them was Joe Ulian, the only person to write a book with Quine, the web of belief. Uh, the chair of the department at the time was uh, our uh, now deceased, uh, Roger Gibson, uh, the only person to write books about Quine that were endorsed by Quine. I think Quine said something like, this is the guy that gets it. So um, that's really like seeped in for, for me, uh, this kind of Quinean viewpoint. And my one of my main takeaways from Quine is uh, the degree to which just about everything, uh, if not everything, is contingent. There's no necessary connection between any two things. Um, one way in which that sort of point gets made is um, the uh, what gets called the Duham Quine thesis. One way to put that is that there's really no there's no knockdown disproving of anything. You, anything that you want to hold on to, like if I wanted to believe in the Holy Spirit, or if I wanted to believe that I have uh, I can magically understand German or whatever, if I want to believe in qualia, I can hold that firm and just adjust the rest of my belief system to make that work out. Mm-hmm. And there's really nothing that you can't do that to. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's always been my, my viewpoint that the best you can do is to try to, to make things hang together. Mm-hmm. And that does invite the question, hang together with what? <laughs> uh, but, um, but for me, in part, this is just because of my early my early experiences, it's going to be hanged together with the physical sciences. Right, right. I had different experiences. Maybe it would be hanged together with Roman Catholicism. That would be the foundation and everything else has to get in line with that. But that's just not how I'm wired. That's, you know, so for me, it's, um, and I could do a post fact defense of that and say, well, you know, the natural sciences have figured out heart surgery. Roman Catholicism has figured out 
guilt, like how to make people feel guilty about sex. Well, really, what can you, what do you have to show for your efforts? 2000 years of, of uh, Christian thinking has accomplished nothing really to speak of. Uh, of course, they would say I got it backwards. So it's a, it's an anti-foundationalist sort of view. There, there, there are no firm, unshakable starting points which on which we're in the sort of thing that Descartes ought to establish by method of doubt. Right. There are there. Are, in fact, the very idea of a starting point is is bogus. Um, you know, the often when people bring up starting points, the idea is something like. What are what are going to be the justifiers or the you know mm -hmm. the unjustified justifiers? You're bringing in this foundationalist picture, which um, you know is part of the Quinean uh, mood to to just gut that whole thing. There really is no sense in which there are foundations, and so if starting somewhere means anything at all, it's just something biographical. Where do I start? Well, I, I, in 1969, that's when I start. Uh, and, um, or, you know, maybe more like 1977, because then I had enough language to be able to ask some questions that seemed philosophical. Uh, it, it, but uh, really that's, I started with just like, there's, there's people and there's cars and there's television and, and calculators and, and we've put people on the moon. That's where I start. And then, so the further quest to make it all hang together, um, I could reject that there's the moon if I wanted to, but that seems like a pretty high price to pay uh, to, to lose the moon. <laughs> certainly, for, certainly for any kids who grew up in the 70s, it would be. Yeah. Um, you, you've mentioned science quite a lot and how, what a big influence science was and scientific uh, teachers were on you. Um, but you didn't become a scientist, you became a philosopher. Um, albeit as a, a philosopher who interacts a lot with science, with scientists. What do you think philosophers can, can contribute to science, um, to this project of seeing how things hang together? I mean, wh why can't scientists work, work out how things hang together on their own without, without, without us? What do we have to bring? Uh, well, I mean, that's a really hard question, and I'm not sure there's an answer to it I, I like. Uh, so I'll share some thoughts and, and I don't know if they're going to all agree with each other. So one thought I have is that the only people that really know anything at all are philosophers. That isn't to say that most philosophers know much of anything at all, but the people that I read and talk to that really, I get a sense of like, okay, this is someone who really has a view that's worth just taking on as my own. They are philosophers. And um, once in a while, there'll be a scientist like say an Albert Einstein, who's very philosophical, um, but mostly, you know, uh, I only like my science digested by philosophers. Um, part of this has to do with the reward structure in the sciences that, that there really isn't, um, they're really not getting grants when they are able to explain things well, they're getting grants when they're able to do experiments um, that are different from the experiments that have been done before. If they could plug their experimental results into technology um, innovation. So there's really very little 
institutional incentive for coming up with theory that is internally coherent and also hangs together with the theories that have gone before that's historically sensitive, but also sensitive to the language and ideas of the contemporary idiom. Um, so much of uh, stuff I read by scientists when they're trying to talk about big picture things is, I mean, I'm sorry, scientists, I love you, but what you're saying is garbage. It's just terrible. Um, so uh, I think one of the main things that philosophers can contribute is knowledge. They, they can contribute like a coherent view of, of what's going on. And they're the only ones that seem to, to care to do it. Um, now, I don't think that, oh, I was just going to say, I don't think philosophy by itself is, is very much good. I don't believe in a pure philosophy. Um, it, 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 so philosophy working together in concert with the sciences, um, but not as like handmaidens or, you know, there's this thing about like, I think it was John Locke or something mm -hmm. like that had this quote about science, uh, philosophy is like clearing the path or the under laborers for the scientists. And I don't like that picture of, of us like clarifying concepts for the, for the scientists. I don't, I don't think there's really anything that scientists value that philosophers can give them. I come at this question from the point of view of human culture as a whole or, or just in a solipsistic, like, well, what do I like? And what I like is the sort of understanding you get from a, a scientifically informed philosopher. Those are the people that can really I guess give what you're knowledge. saying is, is, that, is that philosophers who do the sort of philosophy you do are actually doing science, really. They're seeing how things hang together, but they're, but they're seeing the, pic, the, the bigger picture that experimental scientists are positively discouraged from trying to, to speculate about. Yeah, I mean, a lot of this is just kind of verbal about, well, what does the word science mean? Um, if you if you mean science in like this broad sense of knowledge, then yeah, philosophers are doing science probably better than so-called scientists. Um, but if you if you know what you mean by science is is um, these particular departments at universities uh, who are plugged into these particular granting institutions and and larger you know, in industry supported uh, funding uh, mechanisms. Um, if that's what you mean by science, then no, philosophers aren't really doing much at all for, for that. Once in a while, you'll have someone who, um, you'll have groups of people uh, where the, the philosophers and the theoretical scientists are doing the same sort of thing. You see this in physics, theoretical physics there's people contributing to theoretical physics whose training is primarily in philosophy and they're hired in philosophy departments and they're working side by side with people whose training is in physics and they're working in physics departments so theoretical physics and philosophy of physics kind of become just the same thing with there's no real difference and i think you see some of that as well in neuroscience or more broadly cognitive science where you've the, some of the cognitive scientists are technically philosophers some of them are technically not philosophers, but they're all pretty much doing the same thing. And that thing is this interdisciplinary, uh, highly theoretical way of understanding reality. And I think there's lots of ways of understanding reality. Um, that's the one I like. You know, I don't think we should get rid of the, the, the scientists who are just doing test tube polishing. Um, but, but it's not interesting to me. 
you don't see philosophers as having access to a distinct kind of knowledge, just another kind of data. That yeah, that's a fantasy. It's it's um, it, it it's fun to speculate. What would it what would reality have to be like for there for that to be literally true? Um, but I think it's literally false. There's no realm. There's no domain of objects that uh, that philosophers uh, have to call their own. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's no platonic forms. There's you know space of possible worlds or or set of norms like the idea that there's special things Mm -hmm. these weird magical things that aren't religious things and they're not scientific things they're metaphysical things and that the philosophers have a special pipe that connects their their mind to the to the things the forms or so i mean it's just it's laughable uh I, i laugh at it um and here's a sad fact though so many of uh, the, at least, I don't know, maybe you, you have a different experience, but very often the people that disagree with me about this are the, are the smarter philosophers. <laughs> um, uh, you know, so for example, uh, you know, someone I think we both have uh, a lot of admiration for Philip Goff. Mm-hmm. Uh, we probably disagree with him about everything. Um, but he's super, super bright. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, um, there's lots and lots of people that agree with me about lots of things. I'm not going to name names, but I don't think they're as smart as Philip. And so. And I, I think that's what we want. We want the, the views that, that we think are wrong. We want them to be defended by, by really articulate, smart people, because we want to have the best version of them. Because one thing that happens is, first, it does reveal the internal inconsistencies because the really smart people can't hide them. Um, right. you know, a sloppy presentation of a bad view can seem okay, but a really, really rigorous presentation is going to highlight its own internal problems. And you know, it gives us the right target. We don't want to be arguing with, with shallow, superficial versions of these views. We want to get the best presentation and say why we think it's it's not going anywhere. So uh, yeah, I, I think I think smart opponents are our best friends. Agree. Okay, let's let's so that's some, that's something about your background. Let's get into now into consciousness. I I think you'd agree you'd um, you'd accept that your view of consciousness is a broadly representational one. You think that consciousness is a matter of having certain kinds of mental representations, and we can get into what kind. Yeah, I might want to add um, that I think ultimately that's a ladder to be kicked away. Right. But that's kind of a, more of a, a to-be-continued further research uh, sort of project. But, but, I, but I think that um, for the early stages of understanding what consciousness is, but all, and also the early stages of understanding what Pete Mandic thinks about consciousness, <laughs> it's fair to represent my view as, as representational. I think- I sometimes that, think um, of, of representational talk as a sort of like proof of concept that we can, we can get a grip on it in those terms. And yeah, they're going to be too clunky and they're going to be too simplistic. But if we can get a handle on it, then we can, re- then we can replace that placeholder with something a bit more sophisticated. But um, certainly when you're thinking of something as, uh, as hard to grasp and as global as consciousness, it's helpful to try and uh, get a, a representational um, take on it. But, anyway, but although you are, to that extent, sympathetic to, to representation approaches, your view is, is rather different from more traditional representational views. I, in the 1990s, they, they, the landscape was, uh, of representational views was carved out quite fairly clearly, and there were, there were first-order representational theories, and then there were higher-order representational theories, and the various varieties of all of these, and these were taxonomized quite 
quite nicely. And by the turn of the century, we had quite a nice range of options you could you could choose from. But I think your view is is a, a little more unorthodox. And maybe we could come at it by if you could introduce those views, the first order and high order representational views, and then say what your worries about them were and are and how that motivates your own take on this. Yeah, um, I, I'm happy to get into that. So one way I think about all this stuff is in terms of what what it is that we're trying to explain. How would you um, how would you introduce the the data? And um, that, that's a, that's often a very interesting and vexing problem of of trying to say what the data are that your subsequent theories are going to be theories about. And I, I think that not enough attention is, is paid to that sort of question. Oftentimes uh, people don't do the really do the work of, of specifying what the data is or, or how they would know that that's what the data is. And if you look at the history of these discussions, I think that there's three main ways of, of saying what it is that consciousness is, is supposed to be, uh, what it is that consciousness theories are supposed to be theories of. What, um, I think the three main ways they all they all are are saying that what we need to explain is a certain kind of state. So there are conscious states. And one way of of thinking about this data fixing project is it's a it's a project of trying to say what you mean by consciousness in in a pre theoretical way. Um, a lot of the contemporary discussions of consciousness, I tend to see is is all growing out of Nagel mm-hmm. uh, in the '70s and what it's like to be a bat. And there, Nagel is very specific. Uh, what he means by a conscious state is a state a state in virtue of which there's something it's like to be in that state. And so this is a way of of fixing the target uh, or the or the data uh, or the meaning of the term. Um, that's very state specific. And um, there's other ways of doing it besides that what it's like way of doing it. That what, the what it's like way has in some sense become dominant uh, in part because of the work of people like Ned Block and, and uh, David Chalmers. And I'll come back to that, but, I, but, I, but it's optional uh, mm-hmm. that you start there. Other ways of starting um, is to say that uh, a conscious state is a state of which you are conscious. Mm-hmm. This is the sort of way of introducing the explanatory target that is very popular for higher order right. theories of consciousness. Uh, and sometimes this uh, this idea that a, that a state is a state you're conscious of is called the transitivity principle. Right. Um, the higher order theorists identify a different use of the word conscious uh, which is uh, the sort of way of talking about consciousness in terms of a transitive verb, a verb that takes an object. So the, this plugs in a phraseology of being conscious of something. Right. And you might think, well, this seems like on, uh, off to a circular theory. If a, a conscious state is a state that you're conscious of, you're just using the word conscious again, and now you're giving some kind of circular definition. But as everyone in that uh, area of the terrain is quick to point out, there's actually two different concepts there, conscious, not transitive, mm-hmm. and conscious transitive are two different concepts with two different grammars, the similarity in spelling, but 
is enough of a difference to make it non-circular. And then they can take a further step and say, transitive consciousness is something that you can analyze or explicate representationally. Uh, there's some kind of representational state that is about this other state. You've got um, perhaps a, a thought about an experience. Uh, in having the thought about the experience, you are conscious of the experience. And that's what makes the experience the conscious experience. So that's the second way of introducing the idea of state consciousness or defining what state consciousness is. And I think that that's really, really fruitful, even though I don't agree with a full higher order theory of consciousness, it's got a lot of moves that I think are excellent moves. And we would definitely want to retain in the ultimate theory of consciousness. Then there's a, just to, to finish this thought, there's a third way uh, of thinking about consciousness, which gets more closely associated with first order representational theories. And, and that is to say that a conscious state just is a state that you're conscious with. You have, so anytime you're conscious of something, there's a state that is a conscious state. Um, the, so simply in virtue of representing the world, I, thereby conscious of the world. Now, that basic approach has a hard time with the distinction between states that are conscious and states that are unconscious. Many people want to embrace the general kind of Freudian view that there is an unconscious part of the mind. There's, there's things happening in the mind that we are not conscious of. Um, and we might want to say those are unconscious states, but they're representational states on the first, like the simplistic first order view. Those would be unconscious states in which you're conscious of something and so on some other definition that they're conscious to. Anyway, this is, this is very difficult to keep track of, even when it's all written out. I'm sure it's even more complicated sounding listening to someone talk about it. Um, but uh, maybe you could, maybe you could just go back to that, that distinction between conscious um of and conscious with, because that's that's what gets to the to the key things. Well, there's a way of thinking about the word consciousness, um, where we, it, it's maybe best, the best way to introduce that mm -hmm. uh, or talk about that is from a third person point of view. Huh. So if I'm if I'm, if I'm attributing to other people that they are conscious, right. the most frequent way in which we would do that. Uh, is to, to say that they are uh, conscious of something in their environment, right? right? Um, you know, uh, did you see the gorilla? No, I uh, wasn't conscious of, of a gorilla. Um, to reference the famous video exemplifying change blindness, people don't see the gorilla that walks right through the group of students passing basketballs amongst each other. Um, so in that sort of scenario, presumably the person who is, is conscious of the gorilla, they have a state. There's a state of their brain that represents the gorilla. Um, so what it means for them to be conscious of the gorilla is for them to be mentally representing the gorilla. Right. Now, um, there are interesting cases that are perhaps best demonstrated experimentally in an experimental uh, setup where um, in some sense, people are aware of their environment we could prove that the information is getting in there. Um, but when we ask the people, did you, did you see the gorilla? This is, no, I didn't, I didn't see the gorilla. It's very tempting to say then that they, in, in one sense, were conscious of the gorilla, but in some other sense, they weren't conscious of the gorilla. What is that other sense? 
I think the best explanation for that is to say that they weren't able to have a higher order awareness. They weren't able, they weren't conscious of their consciousness of the gorilla. Right. It sounds paradoxical until you like really pay close attention that we're using different concepts here, just spelling them in very similar ways, but we can unpack it in a non uh, contradictory sort of way. Um, and, and part of what this does is it, it, it makes you appreciate how much there is that we can explain about consciousness in terms that are non-mysterious. I think one of the big triumphs of the, the computer age and the cognitive revolution in uh, psychology uh, and the origin of the cognitive sciences um, is that we have this way of thinking in terms of representations or information processing, mm -hmm. and we can introduce complexities like some of the representations are representations of things happening in the creature's environment. Some of the representations are representations of other representations inside the mind of, of or brain of that creature. And that gives us a powerful set of, of tools to explain lots and lots of uh, what is puzzling and interesting to us about our conscious states. Right. So and this is contrasting with the the first person perspective of, that, that that's associated with 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 Nagel. Nagel talks about what it's like to be a bat, and that's what's it like for the bat subjectively. Only Nagel's right. Only the bat knows. It's it's an entirely first personal uh, phenomenon, and, and so in that sense, consciousness uh, seems to be something that I mean, how can how can how can science get a grip on that? Uh, science is a is a public activity. And you're, what you're pointing out here is that we have other ways of talking about consciousness. We can talk about people being conscious in the sense of being aware of things and being aware of their own awareness of things. Right. And that notion of consciousness, awareness, we have at least sketchy theories of the mechanisms that might be involved in that, involving things like representations and information processing operations and so on. So that starts to give us a way in. The other way, it's just, well, what it's like, and we just throw up our hands, we don't really know. This way gives us a way of starting to develop theories of what it might be to be conscious in this, from this third person perspective. And that's how we get a representational approach to consciousness. That's exactly right. And, and insofar as there anything that's worth saying in terms of the Nigelian way of, of bringing this up, uh, I think you could, you could say it in terms of these representational construals of consciousness. So one, you know, one way to hear um, the what it's like talk is by emphasizing the way the word for enters into it. So what it's like for the bat. Um, and so it's very tempting to, to, to think that um, you're talking about something that the bat has some kind of access to. Right. Um, what does the bat have access to? Is the bat able to count the number of the neurons in its brain? No, the, the bat does have a brain and there's some number of neurons in it. There might be some specific subset of those neurons that are activated uh, when it makes a left turn or when it detects a, a you know, some food uh, using its sonar. Um, but it doesn't have access to those facts as such. It probably has access to what's going on in some other way, so, but we would need to dig deep into the the way it's able to represent its environment and the way it's able to represent itself. And so, 
one way of hearing the question, what is it like for the bat is in this first order way, how is it representing the world? And we actually don't have a full story yet, but we have a really good sketch. Um, We know how to think about this in in quite a bit of detail. We've got a pretty good idea of how to uh, figure out what parts of the bat are its sensory organs, what parts of the bat are the sensory periphery that's being impinged upon by its environment, what parts of the bat um, are are gonna be relatively uh, low level in the sense of encoding very specific kinds of information as opposed to uh, other parts of the bat's nervous system that are, are pretty high level in the sense that um, they're receiving input from the lower uh, earlier stages of the processing stream. They're gonna be representing in those higher level representations are going to be relatively um, abstract in the sense of a lot of information will be dropped out by the time you get to that level, um, representing that there's a worm as opposed to representing that there's something in the lower right quadrant. Uh, So the differences of specificity, there might also be questions we can ask about the format of the representations. Are they more like um, the way we think of pictures representing? Mm. Are they more... Um, sparse and abstract the way we think language represents. There's so much that we we can get purchase on. Um, And we could go back to the what it's like question and say, well, this is what it's like to be a bat. What it's like to be a bat is to know where something is, but but not because it's touching your body, because you're hearing it. it. It's like knowing, knowing where something is without knowing what color it is. It's like knowing where, where something is at a distance from you. Um, there's all sorts of questions we, we can answer um, from this representational uh, perspective. Okay, so we can map the bat's representational uh, states, its, its abilities, its sensitivities. How does that link into the, to the philosophical theories, to the first order theories and the higher order theories of, of, of consciousness? Are they just speculations about the type of abilities that conscious animals have, or are they are they trying to do something something more ambitious? Well, I mean, one thing that you think more ambitious is is to explain phenomenal consciousness, mm-hmm. and um, a, a lot of I think a lot of people that come to this philosophical debate uh, think that that's the that's the prize mm-hmm. that you've. You know, you're not really you're not really talking about what is philosophical here, unless you're talking about phenomenal consciousness. And part of what I want to say about that question, what does this have to do with phenomenal consciousness, is to say there's no such thing as phenomenal consciousness. That the idea of phenomenal consciousness has done more harm than good. Um, but that's that's a very hard claim to make convincingly, in part because the people using the term phenomenal consciousness and crediting it as having a referent. Um, I don't, they don't all agree. They don't even agree with themselves from one time slice to the other. Um, you know, the, there's a lot of, uh, of a moving target sort of uh, situation going on there. You, you know, so one sort of question I would want to ask of them, the ones, you know, that might accuse me of not really explaining what they want to explain. Uh, is to try to pin them down. Like, what do you mean? What do you mean by phenomenal consciousness? You know, one sort of answer you get to that question is we just we just mean what it's like. That's all we mean. I think what it's like is empty. 
Um, and I'll come back and say a little bit more about the emptiness of what it's like in just a second. But there's another thing that people will say in this, in the same breath, at least sometimes, and what they mean by phenomenal consciousness is what Ned Block means by phenomenal consciousness when he introduces the distinction between so-called phenomenal consciousness and access consciousness. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's other papers that uh, where you've got Ned Block and other people like Brian McLaughlin and a few others, uh, Amy Kine, they're all uh, expressing adherence to something called phenomenal realism. Mm-hmm. And at least in the papers I'm familiar with, phenomenal realism is spelled out in a pretty specific way as among other things, rejecting functionalism mm-hmm. about phenomenal consciousness. So what it means to be a phenomenal realist is that, that it's just part of the idea of the phenomenal that it couldn't be the sort of thing that a robot has, mm-hmm. or it couldn't be multiply realizable. It couldn't be analyzable in terms of causal relations. That's baking a whole lot into the, the concept uh, that on the face of it, just plain old innocent, what it's like doesn't seem to have uh, baked into it. So so the idea is that this, this, this third person notion, this notion of awareness that we can spell out in representational terms, in terms of information access within the brain or whatever, that's, that's, that can't be the whole story because there's, there's supposed to be something extra, something additional to all of that. And when we use this talk of what it, it's like, what it's like, we're not just talking in a, in a casual way about all the, 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 an organism's sensitivities to the world, about kind of information it has. We're talking about some distinct extra thing or an extra property. Yeah, sometimes. Right. So, I mean, there's a very loaded way of putting it that when you present it with the, when you present that way of putting it to the, to the people who think it's innocent, mm-hmm. then they will, you know, some of them will shy away from that say, nah, we're not committed to that. We're just committed to this relatively um, thin mm-hmm. theory neutral way. And it's just, you know, it's what it's like, or there's something there, something's happening. Um, but back to my earlier point about the emptiness of, of what it's like talk. Um, a lot of people have looked into the use of that word or the use of that phrase, what it's like and, and the way it gets used in non-philosophical contexts. And, and, and some of the people investing in this, investigating this, they've been trying to build up the claim that philosophers are onto something here. Other people have been trying to tear down the claim. Mm-hmm. Um, I kind of fall into the, the tear down camp. My, my view of, the, of it is that if you, if you look at non-philosophical uses of what it's like, there's lots of them that have nothing at all to do with mentality. Mm-hmm. So, for example, um, I might tell you, by the way, true story, I met Bill Murray. Um, and you might ask me, well, what's he like? Mm-hmm. Or I might say that, you know, I've been, uh, I recently started taking Taekwondo classes. You might ask me, well, what's that like? And perfectly acceptable, grammatically acceptable answers to those questions might be like, uh, you know, well, what's Bill Murray like? He's really tall. Mm-hmm. He's surprisingly tall. Um, and uh, he's actually really funny. Like, unsurprisingly, uh, he, he's just completely funny all the time. Um, mm-hmm. You know, what's it, what's it like to, uh, what's it like to take Taekwondo classes? Well, it's a lot like yoga. And that might work for you if you've got experience with, with yoga. But none of this is is necessarily mentalistic. When we ask the question in the context of, for example, asking what is it like to be a bat, um, there's a lot going on in the background there. We're focusing in on the mental mm-hmm. tacitly. 
in the larger discussion, but there isn't anything about the, the general use or the general grammar of what it's like that, that necessarily marks it as being something specific to the mental. Um, that work is already going on behind the scenes when, when you're talking about bats and, and bad experiences. And I suppose um, there's probably even more behind the scenes. I think there's a kind of dualism baked into it. So if you ask people who are in the philosophy room wondering about what it's like to be a bat, if you ask them, is it part of what it's like to be a bat that there's an even number of neurons firing right now? Mm. Or is it part of what it's like to be a bat that, that um, you know, this is the 17th time that they've been in pain this month. Mm. These are, in some real sense, these are properties of the experience, mm. but I don't think people would want to credit them as being properties of the what it's likeness. Mm. What they mean by the what it's likeness is something actually much more theoretically loaded. They mean that it's something that's mental. It's mm -hmm. something that uh, if you if you have access to it from the first person, you have a direct access to it. Mm -hmm. Maybe they might even be committed to it being the sort of thing that you couldn't possibly be wrong about. Mm -hmm. There's actually a lot going on there. Um, and it might even include this stuff that I was saddling Ned Block with, where it's explicitly anti-functional. Mm -hmm. um, that's, that's a you know, you're not too far away from just making it explicitly non-physical at that point. Um, and, and I think a lot of that is, is, um, is dirty pool. You're, you know, you're, you're cooking the books uh, mm -hmm. in a way that's going to lead you to an anti-naturalist conclusion um, or some kind of obfuscating or mysterian uh, sort of conclusion. And if you don't want to go there or be accused of, of cooking the books to go there, you want to do something that's much more theory neutral, then the plain old what it's like phraseology doesn't give you anything. What it's like is just a way of asking what's the property. So what's Bill Murray like? I'm asking you to tell me some properties of Bill Murray. And they don't necessarily have to be mental properties. They could be any old properties. Um, so if you want to talk about consciousness, the what it's like phraseology does zero work. All the work's being done by stuff behind the scenes. Um, with the other ways of talking about consciousness, the, the stuff that first order and higher order theorists glom onto, that's a part of the English language that is much more explicitly tied to things that are mental. And, um, and it's something that it, it's... Uh, it's much clearer what the, what the rules are. And um, so it's something that's mental, but it's relatively, relatively theory neutral. I don't think it's baked into it that it's physical. It's not baked into it that it's non-physical. Um, and if you wanted to save what it's like talk or resuscitate it or find something worth saying there, there are ways of doing that. Um, you know, you could, you could say, as for example, certain higher order theorists say, um, what it, the, what it's like talk from the Nagel, what it's like to be a bat sorts of, uh, context. Um, you could reconstruct that in terms of the way a subject's mental states seem to them. That's what, what's, that's what it's like. Um, and then the way things seem to them, that raises a question, well, how does it seem to them? Is there some kind of representation relation? Mm -hmm. Um, so if something seems to me in a certain way, it's just some kind of relation that, that I'm bearing to that state and what mediates that relation. Is it representational? Is it something 
more esoteric, like direct acquaintance, mm-hmm. it, you know, uh, how do we, we spell that out? Um, so, I mean, part of what I'm reacting to is the challenge to say what's philosophical about it. I think what's right. philosophical about it is like, well, you know, we, we want to know what it is and we want to get a, a kind of a deep handle on it in a way that answers questions that we recognize as philosophical, like questions about the mind body problem. Is this something that's physical or not? There's epistemological questions like, well, how do you know other people have minds? Um, how do you know you yourself have a mind? How do you, you know, so all that is recognizable, recognizably philosophical. It's recognizably about consciousness. Mm-hmm. In fact, I would say much more so than the phenomenal or what it's like talk. So when, right. when someone says, well, f- phenomenal consciousness is just experience. I don't really know how to use that in a sentence. I know how to use the word experience in a sentence, but if I just take the word experience out and plug the word phenomenal consciousness in there, it's ungrammatical. So that's, you're not really introducing a way of thinking about consciousness, the way that say the first order analysis of consciousness, conscious states or states you're conscious with, or the second order analysis of conscious states that you're are states that you're conscious of. I can see how to plug that into regular English. Right. Those people are talking about consciousness, not the, the, the phenomenal realists. They're the ones that have to do the extra work, um, really, to justify to me that they're talking about consciousness and not um, some something else, some esoteric property that maybe conscious states have. So you're very sympathetic to the sort of picture that the representational theorists present, first-order representational theorists, higher-order representational theorists, but you do have worries because they they turn on the idea that being represented, in the case of first-order uh, theories, the idea is that what it's like to see an apple, um, the redness of the apple, the redness becomes an element in our consciousness by our representing it in a certain way. That redness takes on this conscious quality uh, for us by being represented. Uh, and then higher order theorists say something similar. They say that an experience, say of the apple itself, that state becomes conscious by being represented by another state. Both of those theories seem to be using this notion of being represented as crucial to being conscious, but you're skeptical about that. Yeah, I mean, I think part of what was appealing about uh, representation talk in, say, the 90s is that uh, it seemed like a very promising way of carrying out naturalism. There's this program in philosophy to try to show how all these things that philosophers cared about were continuous with the natural sciences and um, things that have really been bothering philosophers for a long time like, um, for example, phenomenal consciousness, we thought, well, maybe if we could explain that in terms of representations, we're halfway there Mm -hmm. because there's this other um, project in uh, philosophy, some of which is coming out of philosophy language that is really making representation look like a relation that maybe the right way to think of representation is to think of it as reference Mm -hmm. where you've got a relation between the creature and something in their environment. Um, and this is tied up with, uh, you know, a lot of 20th century philosophy is dominated by realism. Mm-hmm. 
So there's a real world out there for us to uh, represent accurately. And part of this realist picture is a truth correspondence view of, or a correspondence view of truth where uh, having an accurate representation is to depict what's, what's really out there. Um, and for a lot of purposes, like for example, if you're you know, building a robot, uh, it's very natural to think that what you're doing is um, creating information processing systems inside of the robot that are going to be hooked up to sensors that are taking information in from the world and other parts of the robot are going to be memory stores that remember that information that's been encoded. So you've got this, this picture of representation as relational that I think is guiding a lot of uh, representationalism in consciousness. And one of the things that I've been critical of is what to do with that picture mm-hmm. in the face of the fact that representations often are false. Right. One of the great things about representations is they can get it wrong. What's great about getting it wrong is that you could explain other people in terms of their wrong representations. Right. There's this famous test of uh, in child psychology which is supposed to indicate that a child has a grasp of other minds and you demonstrate that they are able to grasp the concept of a false belief. And they're able to explain someone's behavior in terms of their believing falsely that, for example, the marbles in the box when really it's in the basket. Um, so when you take that kind of situation and bring it back into the consciousness room and ask, well, let's go, what, I mean, if consciousness is representations, what, what are we supposed to say in the case where what you're representing doesn't exist? So I'm hallucinating that there's a rhinoceros in the room, but there's no rhinoceros in the room. And I'm not, and it's not like I'm, I'm attributing to my guitar that it's a rhinoceros. It's just, you know, I might, you know, um, as it were from whole cloth, uh, coming up with this seeming rhinoceros, um, What's going on there? Well, it can't be that there's a there's a, a a relation I bear to any rhinoceros. It doesn't see that that does any work at all. Um, that I'm related to the set of all rhinoceri or or some some rhinoceros. I mean, I just don't see that that's could be doing any any work for us. Um, the uh, much more tempting than to say that um, what. Uh, What's really going on there needs to be explained in terms of the representations themselves, mm-hmm. not this representing relation. One, one way to really try to put a point on this is to say that um, representing just couldn't be a relation to the thing represented. Mm-hmm. That, and that way of talking is a kind of idiom or idiomatic speech, like saying that um, Jones has kicked the bucket. Right, right. When I say Jones has kicked the bucket, that phrase kick the bucket is holophrastic. Mm-hmm. The whole phrase has a meaning and the meaning is to die. It doesn't decompose into the kicking part and the bucket part. Right. Uh, if Jones kicked the bucket, there isn't some bucket that Jones thereby kicked. And similarly, if you're thinking about a unicorn, there isn't a unicorn that you're thereby thinking about. And to attribute to you that you're thinking about a unicorn is to attribute to you that you're in a certain state. It's a unicorn thought. It's not to say that you're in a relation to anything. Now we might want to say that, you know, 
what makes that state a unicorn state is relations that it bears to other states mm-hmm, mm-hmm. inside of your mind and to give what's called like a conceptual role analysis of the content of that state. Um, I, I'm very open to, to something like that. Um, but my, my critique of these representational views is they, they want to make representation into a relation. And I think it, it can't be a relation if you take seriously that one of the things we do with representations is to represent what isn't there. Right, right. You can't have a two-place relation if one of the relata doesn't even exist. So in some sense of non-relational, we have to give a, a non-relational characterization of, of these representations and, and what they're doing for consciousness. So this representation talk is a kind of a way of getting into um, the idea that the, that the, these conscious the consciousness is, is a property of states. Right. I don't want to say intrinsic because that might lead me into a lot of trouble. Uh, that looks like I believe in, you know, in qualia inversions. Mm-hmm. Um, but in some, I think in some, clear, fruitful, non-mysterious sense that it is intrinsic. Uh, The consciousness is something that's um, intrinsic to the person that's having it. Representation is a good way to zero. It's it's a good concept for zeroing in on it, but we shouldn't think of representation as a kind of relation to what's represented. So is this right? Features don't get into my consciousness by being represented. My consciousness is constituted by a bunch of representations with various contents. And by what the effects that those representations have on the rest of my, my cognitive system. Yeah. So one way of putting it is in terms of a thought experiment, not that I hang a lot on thought experiments, but I think it, they're, they're often useful uh, for stating things, mm-hmm. you know, so um, maybe they don't have a lot of thought experiments don't have a lot of work to do in the context of justification. Mm-hmm. But they, I think they do a lot of great work in the context of discovery, mm-hmm. but also just the context of explication. Tell me, tell me what you mean. Mm-hmm. So here's what I mean. Uh, suppose there was a brain that in terms of what's going on inside the brain, it's exactly like my brain. Mm-hmm. But this brain, unlike I suppose my brain, this brain doesn't have a body, mm-hmm. nor does this brain have a history. So my brain uh, is at least 52 years old Um, because, you know, I I was born 52 years ago, probably had my had this brain a little bit before that 52 plus nine months, something like that, Mm -hmm. baby brain. Uh, But anyway, this brain, let's suppose, just popped into existence. Swamp man style. There was a lightning Mm -hmm. bolt. There was a quantum accident. There's a non-zero probability that this sort of thing could happen just at random. That my brain, which is just a finite set of particles, um, could be duplicated some, in some distal part of the galaxy, just floating there in mm-hmm. space and, and and hanging out for like say a, a duration of of thirty minutes. And every every state that I have been in in the past thirty minutes this brain on the far side of the galaxy, it's been in those states too. Mm-hmm. Um, so if, if at, at the beginning of the 30 minute mark, I'm, I'm looking at you in the, the zoom uh, video and, and uh, you know, really attending to the blueness of your shirt and wondering whether that's the same shade of blue that, that my uniform shirt and Catholic grade school was um, there's a, the, 
um, in just about every sense that matters for consciousness, this brain that has never been to Catholic school, that isn't currently in a Zoom meeting with Keith Frankish, that brain is in the uh, same types of conscious states. Mm-hmm. There's some sense in which that brain isn't really representing Keith Frankish. Um, there's a sense in which it's never, you know, it certainly doesn't have true representations of Keith Frankish. I would argue it has no representations of, of Keith Frankish. Uh, nonetheless, it has conscious states, everything that you, I think we're saying about consciousness, it would, it would have those. Um, there's certain counterfactuals that be true. Like if you were to stick it into a body and ask it questions like, Hey, what's your name? It would say Pete Mandic. Yep. And if you asked it, have you ever been to Catholic grade school? It would say, yes. If you asked it, how old are you? It'd say, well, you know, 52 plus or minus a few months. Um, and none of those things that's saying are, are true mm-hmm. on the assumption that it's referring to itself when it says I, mm-hmm. um, I think there's some real senses in which some of what it's doing isn't, isn't representing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, there are very useful ways of talking about representation where it is reference. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it is, a, you know, it, some representations are names. Some names do have their use or their job in terms of a causal historical yeah. um, relation that they bear. Um but so, you know, I, one might argue that, that it uh, doesn't have that. And so, um, so it has states that are doing all, that are doing all this work, they're having all the, all these effects and, uh, on the rest of your cognitive system on, on your behavior and so on, but it's not plugged into an environment where doing that sort of work really means anything. Right. Now there's a certain sort of case, um, that someone might bring up at this point to which I want to say, no, I don't care. No one should care. Um, so someone might say at this point, all right, Mandic, <laughs> I'll give you your brain. But now here's a thought experiment for you. Imagine instead of your whole brain, it's just a chunk, some smaller chunk. That's what pops into existence. And so whatever that, that chunk of your brain is doing for you, which presumably has something to do with consciousness, we have this, this chunk. And then you iterate this thought experiment with smaller and smaller chunks. At some point, you're just going to have a single neuron that pops into existence in the far side of the galaxy. What about that neuron, Mandic? Does it have consciousness? And I think that the right response to that whole sequence is, who cares? There's, um, the, now, does, does that mean that consciousness doesn't actually matter or it's not actually anything at all. No, no, no. Um, I just want to use this meta thought experiment to point out there's a lot of other things that we'd be happy saying that at some indeterminate point in that sequence, it just doesn't make sense anymore. And that's fine. So um, instead of talking about brains and consciousness, what if we were talking about faces? Right. Um, you know, uh, or here's, a, here's another sort of example um take the concept of being lost um i i I thought of this yesterday i had a weird argument with my five-year-old daughter about whether her blanket was lost she couldn't find her blanket i had pretty good argument that the blanket was in the house 
There's no reason to think the blanket had left the house. And so I was arguing, therefore, it's not lost because in some sense, we know where it is. And she wasn't having it. She didn't know where her blanket was. She didn't buy the argument anyway. Um, but I started thinking like, well, how small of a space could a blanket be in and still be lost? <laughs> and there's a certain point where I think everyone will appreciate that the right answer to that question is who cares? Right. <laughs> no, like we don't think the word lost is that thick is going to be able to deliver an answer. And we're totally fine with that. So I think consciousness is the same way. There's certain cases in which, yeah, of course, Keith Frankish has consciousness, even though I'm not Keith Frankish, I'm as confident about that as anything. Mm -hmm. that Keith Frankish has consciousness. Um, is, is a single neuron of Keith Frankish is in a Petri dish conscious? Almost certainly not. Um, at what point in the sequence of thought experiments with the individual chunk of the brain is it no longer conscious? I think consciousness is just like face mm -hmm. or lost or Wednesdays. They're all on equal footing, and there's really no fact of the matter about those sorts of metaphysical questions. Does this link up to the earlier distinction we have between the first person and the third person perspective? Because when you look at it from a third person perspective, and you look at what I, you know, the signs of consciousness that I'm given, that I give, the kinds of things that I can do, and the kind of awareness that I seem to have of the world and of myself, you can imagine that gradually degrading and degrading, and maybe I get ill or something, and you, you know, get to a point where you think, I don't even know if he's still conscious. Um, but from the first person point of view, it seems rather, rather different. It seems like, well, there's this, there's this inner world here and it may be rich or it may be, may be sparse, but it's still either here or not here. And either as sometimes as the lights are on inside or they're not inside. And so from that perspective, you would imagine from the inside, as I, as I degrade through illness, uh, there's either something it's like to be, or there's not something it's like to be, and there's going to be a, a, a cutoff point. Now, yeah, I think that's all totally wrong. You're suggesting that that second perspective is a bad way of thinking of, of ourselves, of our own inner life. We shouldn't be thinking of our own inner lives in that way. Yeah, I think um, I do believe that there is such a thing as first person perspective, mm -hmm. but it's something that um, it, it's just like pronouns. Mm -hmm. So there are certain words in our language, certain rules for the use of those words, whereby I get to say, I am here now. Um, and, and you cannot say those words to refer to the person, the location uh, that I'm referring to when I use those words. You're doomed to, if you're going to use those words, refer to some other location or person. Or if you want to refer to the same person or location, you have to use second or third person language. So I think there's certain representations in our public language that have those rules. And I think there are mental analogs to them as well. Mm -hmm. But that's all that's going on with the first person. Um, in other words, we could, give a, we could give a representational analysis of what's going on there. There's certain mm -hmm. mental representations that plausibly work in this kind of first person pronoun or, or demonstrative or indexical sort of way. Um, and there's nothing epistemologically very deep about that. There's not like special properties right. that, that only uh, uh, you can, can represent. There's certain properties that only you can represent indexically, right. but I could represent them without residue in a non-indexical way. Um, 
So I can think of this. I can think this is my shirt. You can't think of can't think of it as my shirt. Right. But to go back to the because I mean, one way of hearing the question you wanted to ask is this question about vagueness and whether consciousness is vague. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I come down on the side that yeah, it's as vague as anything. Um, that you know, maybe you have to be more familiar with breakdowns of consciousness right. either in in the experimental uh conditions or maybe because you did lsd or maybe you've been messing around meditation and you could see all those all the sorts of ways in which uh what we ordinarily take for granted can can be taken apart you could have just like small pieces of it um but i do think there's a that you can make a very plausible case that consciousness is just as vague as faces or you know whether something is in the same room with you or not uh or whether the airplane has entered into the cloud, we could come up with these kind of in-between cases where eh, it's kind of conscious, it's kind of not, um, it's very faintly conscious, uh, and so there's no there's no cutoff that would that sh- would give us confidence that there has to be some number of neurons after which the lights go off. And the first-person perspective doesn't give us it's not giving us access to, to to special features. It's the same things that are available in principle, to see from the third-person perspective, to observe from the third-person perspective. I'm just observing them from a different perspective. But as you see the breakdown uh, uh, progressing from the outside, so I would be observing, as it were, from the inside. And there would still be this this gray area where it's not clear whether I'm conscious, even from the first-person perspective. Yeah, that's that's my claim. Now, to make it plausible, there's a whole lot of work that needs to be done, mm. lots of different examples that need to be um contemplated uh you know so it's it it might be very hard to hear that and understand what that Mm -hmm. might mean at all um but i'm pretty confident that that i can make the case perhaps even in this episode of the podcast make (laughs) make the case um but yes that's that's the view right so there's there's another aspect of this that i want i want to get into still talking about representation here because one of the things that you've that you've uh, argued at length, and I think very persuasively, is against the idea that experience has a non-conceptual content. There's this plausible view, I think, that that we have two basic kinds of mental states. We have propositional attitudes like beliefs and desires and so on, which are chunked up into into concepts. So we think, you know, the the book is on the shelf. We deploy the concept book and shelf and so on. And then we have perceptions and sensations, which just involve, which are not conceptualized in that way. So I just see the book on the shelf and there's some sort of representation of the book and being on the shelf, but it's not chunked into concepts in that way. And the idea is that it's often said that there's a much more, much finer grain to perception and sensation than there is to, 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 to conceptualize thought and that we can have, make discriminations, uh, perceptual discriminations that we can't conceptualize. Now you, you don't agree with that, and you think that that's actually quite an important part of your of your view of consciousness. And so, can you can you tell us a bit about that? Yeah. So, I mean, I was led to take that on in a somewhat complicated way. Part of it was um, I was really interested in the literature on non-conceptual content, which in many ways operates outside of consciousness studies. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was. While I was in graduate school, um, I spent a lot of time with Rick Grush, who was a uh, postdoc at Washington University at the time, and we stayed friends. And then um, my last year of grad school, I went and I, uh, he was then a, a professor at Pitt, 
And I went and I became a visiting scholar at Pitt for a semester in 1999 and sat in on classes with um, John McDowell, Robert Brandom. And then prior to that, while Rick Rush was still at Washington University, we did we were in a reading group together. We spent a lot of time reading Gareth Evans and the varieties of reference. So I really got hooked into a lot of stuff about whether experience is conceptual versus non-conceptual. And, and a lot of that was being conducted completely disconnected from Nagel, Chalmers, Dennett sorts of conversations mm -hmm. about consciousness, but it really stuck with me. And um, and I saw how it would relate to these, you know, more properly consciousness uh, related uh, debates. And I was always struck by the fact that no one had really tried on what I think of as full-blown conceptualism. Mm -hmm. So if, if you look at like the, the, you know, the Chris Peacock, Garrett Evans, John McDowell sorts of ways of thinking about this. They're responding to this question that Gareth Evans poses that goes something like, do we really, do we really understand the proposal that we have as many concepts as colors that we can see? And um, McDowell is committed to this Solarzian view that consciousness has to be conceptual. And the way he tries to make the case for conceptualism is by way of demonstratives. So there's always a demonstrative concept on hand that allows you to refer to a particular shade of color as a this shade or that shade. Um, so you, it's not like you have a separate concept for each discriminable shade of red, red 23, red 27. You could just say this shade of red. And, and, um, and I thought that's not conceptual enough. Like if you really wanted to be conceptual, why not argue that there's something much thicker than these demonstratives? So I, I took it on in, in part kind of like as a dare. Sometimes this happens in philosophy. You're like, you know, no one has really gone over here. I think maybe I'm bad enough to do it. I'll jump the canyon with my motorcycle. <laughs> but another thing that led me to it was a lot of my views were really tending toward, um, in many, many ways, a kind of a higher thought view of consciousness and there's a way of understanding the higher thought view of consciousness is that there isn't anything in consciousness that is not conceptualizable in order for it to be conscious it's something you have to have a higher thought about thoughts themselves are these holy conceptual states they don't have non-conceptual residues so i really was kind of attracted in part because i believed it but also in part because i just want to see if i could pull it off uh to really, you know, think through, um, could you give an, a, a purely conceptual account without using demonstratives uh, for the view that says, yes, there are, we have as many concepts as uh, colors that we can represent. And one way to make the task easier for yourself is to argue that we actually don't represent that many colors. We don't see as many colors as you might be led to by a very naive view of how perception works where that naive view is that you have this picture um, with with pictorial representation you can't represent a cat being on a mat without also representing how big the cat is and what the shape of the cat is and there's got a, there's some determinate set of colors that you if it's a color photograph that you represented as having if it's a black and white photograph there's this convention that all you're representing are like luminance values. Hue drops out is just not part of the content. But you're still uh, on the pictorial view. There's determinate shades mm -hmm. of 
And and I thought like, well, what if what if experience is a lot more like Dennett scouts in the Consciousness Explained book. So he's got that example about more Maryland's. Um, you enter a room, there's a whole bunch of Marilyn Monroe's on this Andy Warhol wallpaper. Suppose there's a thousand of them or a hundred of them or exactly 73 of them. Are there 73 representations of, of your brain? Are there 73 discrete states for each of the Maryland's? That seems like a really crazy way of building a brain. So that like, if you really think of all the work that would have to go into doing that, it seems like you could, everything you would need to do, you could do with something like Dennett says, uh, like a linguistic-ish yeah. representation that just says a bunch of Maryland's. This is kind of like the speckled hen situation, right? You, you, see a, uh, you see a hen, you see the hen as being speckled. Do you have an experience of each of the speckles? Um, there's lots of reasons aside from just engineering cost uh, to think maybe we don't. Um, so I, so I really was attracted to, to this project to see how much I could pull off and, and see what kind of cases that could be made. And the more I dug into it, the more I convinced myself of it. This is one of those cases where, you know, later on you uh, you believe the, your conclusion uh, after you've already committed to writing the paper. Um, so, you know, one sort of case that's very interesting, and and this relates to things I was saying about breakdowns of consciousness. There's a cerebral achromatopsic patient. So this is someone who, one way of describing it is they can't consciously perceive colors. But there's a lot of evidence that in some sense, they are able to perceive colors. And there's a very interesting demonstration of this. And the gist of it goes like this. You, you could present the patient uh, or the subject with a, a red cross on a green background. And you could have the stimulus set up in such a way that the only difference between the cross and the background is spectral information, or what we might say is the hue so they have the same saturation, the same brightness. The only difference between the green of the background and the red of the cross is the hue. Mm -hmm. And um, you ask the patient, can you see the cross? And they could say yes. Or there's other conditions you might ask them, do you see anything here? And they say, yes. Well, what do you see? I see a cross. But then you ask them like, well, what color is the cross? Mm -hmm. Or in virtue of what? Can you see that the cross is different from the background? And they can't say anything. They're like, I don't know. But you can see it, right? It's not like you're smelling it. Yeah, it's, I, I know, I know I can see it. It's not, it's not like coming to me as if, you know, in a dream. I could see it. I could see there's a cross in the background. And I think many, many people find this really puzzling that we often think that whatever consciousness is, it's kind of like what Aristotle said. You know, Aristotle said, you've got jelly in your eye and you see a purple triangle. That means that there's like a little purple triangle in your eye. And, um, and like the jelly of your eye becomes colored. It takes on the color and shape. And there's some sense in which the eye does work that way. It's, there's an image projected onto the retina. But after that, you know, this picture model really breaks down. There's not, there's not anything really triangular of significance, um, you know, the inside of the brain, there's like gray matter and there's a bunch of blood and mostly it's dark in there. The lights are off. There's nothing, uh, you know, you see something electric blue. There's nothing literally electric blue in your brain. 
Um, it's got to be representational. Uh, so this case of the, uh, you know, the achromatopsic patient, they can see something. They see it in virtue of color, but they don't see it in virtue of consciously seeing the colors. There's a sense in which they have phenomenology, but they don't have color phenomenology. It's very puzzling to people, but that's because they're assuming that there's one way that, that conscious vision has to work. And that is, well, you've got caused in here by the stuff out there are these little models, right? Like a Barbie doll dream house. If you consciously perceive a car, there's a little car inside of your mind or inside the, there's a car shaped image on the screen of your uh, Cartesian theater. And so, you know, a lot of the project is really just taking the Dennett sort of view that you could represent things in this very sparse, abstract, linguistic, conceptual way and explain everything that needs to be explained. And so one of the things that that leads you to is saying stuff like, for example, um, you could you could see two different shades of blue without seeing them as as the distinct shades of blue that they are. So one sort of case that I like to emphasize um, is the case that you don't need people with brain damage for, it, and it has to do with discriminations of, of colors. There's, uh, there's certain shades that are so similar that you can only discriminate them when they're presented simultaneously and very in very close proximity. Um, so you've got two paint chips that if they're next to each other at the same time, you could see that they're different. You could see one of them is a little more purple than the other or a little darker than the other. But if I show them to you one at a time, you can't, you can't say which one was the darker of the two, or even if one of them was the darker of the two. Um, and it might be tempting to say that there's a conscious for each of the, of the shades, there's a, there's a, a phenomenal shade that corresponds to it or, or there's a slightly darker quale, but that becomes really puzzling. Like if, if, so I have a quale, but I don't have access to the quale, right? That's a strange thing about qualia. There's other puzzles besides that one. So for example, um, you can start off with a, a, a bright red paint chip and through a sequence of paint chips, wind up with something that's bright green. If it's true that for each of these non-discriminable uh, shades, you have the same quale, then by the end of the series, you should have a bright red quale in response to a bright green thing. That's kind of a, a, a version of Sorites puzzle. Um, you don't want to say that. You don't, you don't want to say that it's still going to be bright red. So at some point, then does it change? And if so, at what point does it change? So there's a lot of different puzzles you could raise for the supposition that we have these distinct qualia for each of these visible shades. Mm -hmm. And you could dissolve all those puzzles by saying that lots and lots of times our conscious experience is just like this more Maryland's mm -hmm. thing. I represent that there's a bunch of dogs in the yard without representing at all what exact number of dogs there are. I mean, maybe I, I represent there being more than three and less than 50, but it doesn't need to have any more specificity than that. In the cases of the color, um, 
in some cases, you're simply representing that it's a shade of blue. And there's no, just no commitment whatsoever to which shade of blue it is. And when they're both present, now you're in a position to represent one is darker than the other. So you've got a store of concepts. Some of them um, are relational color concepts like darker than. And then you've got other color concepts that basically correspond to our basic color terms, where a basic color term is a monolexemic high frequency term for a color. Um, and then you've got with that, everything you would need to represent all the colors that you're able to consciously experience. And there's some kind of un unintuitive and surprising things that fall out of that. And that is like that sometimes you're simply representing that something is, is blue without representing it as being some determinate shade of blue. So is this the picture then? So it seems to us that there's the world out there and then the world and the, the impact on our sense organs and somehow our brains create this sort of picture of the world. And that picture of the world is as determinate as the world itself. So everything in that picture has a determinate shape and size and color and, you know, there's, right. yeah. And then we somehow inspect that picture and uh, thereby extract uh, whatever information we have about the world. So there's this intervening visual sensation and you're, you're saying, no, what's happening is that our senses are gathering information about the world. They're telling us about the world. They're telling there's a cross there or that there's a lot of Marilyn's there. And we're, our brains are using that information, modulating our behavior and so on. But it's not constructing any picture like that. It doesn't need to construct any picture. And the sort of information that we're getting from the world is shaped by our concepts that we have for the world. So we can't, we can't get information that we can't conceptualize, that we can't put into some form that can be used by by the rest of our cognitive system. So we really can't see colors that we don't have some sort of concept for, even if it's a, a comparative one darker than the other thing or whatever. Is that, is that roughly right? Is that roughly the? Yeah, I mean, so one very simplistic way of putting it that I would wanna mm. you know, take back some details about later, but mm. I think it's a good ladder to get us up mm -hmm. to the next floor, we'll kick some or all of the latter away later. But one way of thinking about this is in terms of the language of thought. Mm -hmm. So we've got, um, there's these mental states that we are in that are thoughts. Mm -hmm. Each thought is like a sentence. Mm -hmm. The sentence is made out of words. You've got a, a finite store of words from which to assemble a potentially infinite uh, set of thoughts. Um, and if there's a color that you've never seen before, no worries, it will cause you to string some words together in your language of thought. And the thought will be something like, that's a dark, dark shade of blue. Or, or there's two shades of blue, one darker than the other. Right. And that's literally what the content of consciousness is, is this thing that you would, uh, could express without residue in a public language sentence. Now, there's some cases in which things seem more detailed than that. But that's okay, because one of the words in your language of thought is the word detailed, right. and another word is the word more. Right, right. And so things can seem very detailed to you without it being literally true that anything very detailed is happening inside of you. Yeah, yeah. But one way to drive this home is to focus on other sorts of examples where something like the story has to be true. So mm -hmm. um, to just ignore color for a little bit, talk about other ways in which things can seem to us consciously. Things can seem like they're six feet away from us. Mm -hmm. um, something could seem very far away from you without 
the experience itself being very far away from you. Presumably the experience itself is in you. Um, so there have to be these big differences between the experience and what the experience is a depiction of, or an experience of, or a representation of. And, and some of the examples when we focus on them, we realize like, oh, right, of course, of course. Color is weird. You know, it gets very tempting to think of our the experience of color in terms of some kind of mental apprehension of mental colors. Mm-hmm. But it's really hard to, to take other sorts of experienceable properties and shove them into that schema. Mm-hmm. Right. So like if something is six feet away from you, there's mental six feet, like what? Like it just doesn't, it doesn't fit into the schema. We could see on the face of it that that's not going to work. Um, mm-hmm. But I think with a little extra work and, and, and looking at cases like um, the stuff about the sorts of discriminations we can and can't make, the sorts of things that we, you know, like you could see that something is a comb or you could see that something is a piece of a lined piece of paper. I could see that you've got a bunch of books on the shelf without there being some determinate number that I, I of books that I, I see that you have. Mm-hmm. Your brain is just registering lots of books, all sorts of lots. There's a lot of books there. And I'm, you know, you know that I'm very sympathetic to this sort of view, but I mean, let's just, suppose someone says, okay, okay. I, 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 it, from a third person perspective, that sounds, you know, fine, but what you do have a paper called the myth of uh, the myth of color sensation. Uh, excellent paper, by the way, I strongly Thank recommend you. To, uh, to read that in which you, you do appeal to uh, various kinds of optical illusions to the buttress a case very plausibly, I think. But suppose someone says, well, look, look, take an after image. You know, I look at something that's yellow. I stare, I fixate on something yellow. And then I look at a white wall. And I have this blue after image. Now, <laughs> it's not just my brain telling me there's something blue there. It's not just brain going in. I reckon there's something blue there. It's like, there's, a, there's this blueness. You know, I'm somehow confronted with this blueness, but it's plainly not in the world. And now, how do we persuade people that that blueness is, as I would say, in a sense, illusory? It's not even, it doesn't even have a mental reality of the kind we think it has. Yeah, I think um, we need different arguments than the ones I've been giving in this interview so far um you know so one thing i i at least seems convincing to me but who am i to say what is really convincing but but what you know because i mean i present this sort of thing to myself and i ask myself mandic do you really believe you really believe what you're saying um and i i do check in with myself and make sure i haven't drifted too far um right so this this is blueness, blue Gansfeld or something, right? Um, how can this be? Uh, does it make sense to say it simply seems to be? And um, there's no there's no is. Uh, you know, one way of thinking about this is to, to go to the philosophical mind body problem and ask. Well, what, what's supposed to be problematic about that? There's supposed to be something problematic about um, the claim that what that is, is a brain state. Well, why is that problematic? You might say the reason it's problematic is it doesn't seem like a brain state, but wait a minute. How would it have to seem to seem like a brain state? 
the only the only ways things ever do seem to you is that they impinge upon your brain one way or another everything that's ever seemed to you is impinged on your brain one way or another presumably when things seem different to you there's some difference in the way they impinge upon the brain there's actually enough brain states to go around <laughs> for every every distinct seeming there's going to be a brain state um and so all right, I'm, I'm having a blue experience. Uh, who's to say that isn't a brain state? You're really not authorized to say it doesn't seem like a brain state. You're already begging the question. To, to, you're in danger of begging the question there. Uh, maybe that's exactly how brain states seem. The, the certain brain states that the best way to say what it seems like is to say that it's like I'm looking at a, an expanse of blue. There's other brain states in which the, the, the way I talk about them is to say I'm looking at an, an expanse of, of red. That's just, that is the seeming. Um, now, there's a real sense in which they don't seem like brain states in this sense. They could seem that way to you, even though you don't know anything about brain states. Mm -hmm. You've never thought about brain states. You didn't even realize you had a brain. That's a certain kind of theoretical uh, thinking. Um, but we could, we could add that into the mix. We could train someone so that their brain states would seem like brain states to them in that latter theoretical sense, in the sense that it could only seem like a brain state to you if you had enough of the theory of brain states. Um, so anyway, I mean, um, what I'm saying right now is just kind of sketching a strategy. I don't think I'm actually executing the strategy yet. I wouldn't presume anyone listening to me right now to find this convincing. Um, but that's the general direction I'd want to go in is to try to like really get people to think about like, well, what is this? And what are you licensed to say about it? Also, what are you licensed to say about what it seems to you to be? Like really drill down on what that means for something to seem to you to be that way. And also think about what it would mean for it to seem to you to, to not be a brain state versus to seem to be a brain state. Once you start building all that in, you can, um, I think, make the convincing case that, um, yeah, so there's something happening right now. It, um, I want to describe it as uh, being the sort of thing that I'm in when I say there's some blue. And it makes perfect sense that we would train children and their little brains to do things like say that's blue, that's red. They're going to be in certain brain states when that happens. Uh, you can trigger those brain states in the absence of anything blue in their environment. What, what, what are they going to say under those conditions? They're going to say the same sort of thing as when you triggered those brain states with the blue environmental objects. They're going to say something like it seems like there's something blue. Um, that's a very natural thing for them to say. And there's a way of hearing that, that what they're describing is their brain state. And we could explain away the appearance, the appearance that it's not a brain state by pointing out that we haven't trained them yet. But we could, we could train them in such a way that their brain states would seem like brain states to them. We, can we get into your, your views about introspection, aren't we? Because we, we talk about this this afternoon, there really there are, there are two things going on here, aren't there? On the one hand, what, what we have is our visual system saying something blue there, something blue there. 
And at the same time, we have awareness that it's, a, that it's an after image. And so we say, no, there isn't, it's wrong. But we don't just stop there. We don't just go, oh, I, my visual system told me there was something blue there, but it was wrong, end of. We say, but there really is something going on here. And it's not something out there. I know that, I know that it's not blue out there. And so we direct our attention now, as you say, to, inwards to, if we're, if we're physicalists, it's going to have to be to our brains, isn't it? Um, but we really just seem to be look, concentrating on the same thing, as it were. We're the, the same thing that is, the, the blue that seemed to originally to be out there until we realized it was, it was an afterimage, seems to be the same thing we're attending to when we focus on the thing that really is here and that is in us. So we, we're both looking inwards and outwards at the, at the same time, it seems. How does, how does that work? I think this is a pretty important aspect of the, of the puzzle yeah. of the whole thing. I mean, one way to one way to come at it is to think about, um, and this is something I get from Paul Churchland, or at least I think I'm getting it from Paul Churchland. Maybe Paul Churchland wouldn't approve of my use of Paul Churchland, um, but but think about the ways in which measuring devices work. Mm -hmm. So we've got certain instruments that are certain that are uh, causally correlated with certain kinds of of, of properties. Um, and a lot of times, one of the same instrument is actually causally correlated with a whole bunch of properties, mm -hmm. because those those properties in the external world themselves are correlated with other external world properties. So, for example, atmospheric temperature and atmospheric pressure are very closely correlated. You can use something that is calibrated to be a thermometer. You could use it as a um, a barometer because of there's this correlation in the external world between temperature and pressure. You could just take this thermometer and say, okay, now I'm measuring pressure. What do you have to do to the thermometer in order for it to be a, a, something that's measuring pressure? There's a sense in which you don't have to do anything to the thermometer. You just have to, I mean, there's one thing you might do to the thermometer and that's you change the labels on it. <laughs> you, you like, you know, you rub off the paint that says degrees Celsius and then you pencil in something else that says like, um, what is it, millibars or I forgot the measure of, mm. of atmospheric pressure, but that's the basic idea. Um, in other words, you're recalibrating it. The, the, the basic mechanism of a piece of metal expanding or whatever, um, that mechanism is the same. You're just changing what the labels are on it. And now you have something that is telling you the... Um, about pressure instead of temperature. In some sense, it was already telling you that. It was already there. Mm -hmm. uh, you just have to reinterpret what the, what the signal is. All that information was there already. Now, there's another thing you could do with that, and it seems a little perverse, but we are philosophers and we'll go there. So one thing that you might do is to say, well, I don't, I don't wanna change this as being uh, something that's measuring pressure instead of temperature. I want, I want it to, instead of being a, a measurement of something else, to be a measurement of itself. So um, you could use a ruler to measure the length of a table, or you could just use a ruler to measure the length of the ruler. The, the perverse part is like, who would do that? Mm -hmm. <laughs> like, what? Don't you have better things to do at the time? Uh, but there's another point, which is that, well, I mean, we're kind of doing that already. We just, it, it's so trivial that it's not worth remarking on unless you're in this weird, you know, two philosophers on a podcast sort of situation. But, you know, if you want to know how long the ruler is, just look at the ruler. 
oh, it's a 12 inch ruler instead of a six inch ruler, or it's a 10 centimeter ruler. So the ruler is carrying information about all sorts of things. Some of them are things outside of itself. Some of it are just itself. Information bearing states carry information about all sorts of things, including about themselves. So how do you apply all of this to persons who are able to perceive and introspect? And I think the way of thinking about that is by analogy to the thermometer case, there's a sense in which you don't have to change the thermometer. You just relabel right. its states or you reinterpret its states. I think you could do the same thing with um, our, our uh, perceptual states. You could take a perceptual state and just relabel that mm -hmm. as, um, so instead of um, I have a color detector and I usually interpret the deliverances of the color detector as telling me about what environmental colors are stimulating it, I can interpret the deliverances of the color detector as telling me what state the color detector is in. Right. One way of thinking about this is if you wanted to build a introspective robot, you already had a, a perceptive robot, a robot that is able to perceive things in its external environment. What if you wanted it to introspect? Would you have to add anything to the hardware? Mm -hmm. um, and and I, I think that um, you think, I mean, I haven't really spelled this out as a logical argument, uh, but I, I think it's pretty clear once you think about it for a while that this, this could always be solved as a software problem. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. If you had a thing that was able to reliably, on the basis of the activation of its sensors, tell you that there's something in, in the external world, you could just add a little bit to the software. And now it's telling you about the state of the fuel gauge. Instead of telling you how much fuel is in the tank, it's telling you where the needle is on the fuel gauge. And you don't need to add other gauges. You just need to recalibrate. So the way that would apply to a, um, a person, the sort of, you know, for example, a child, mm -hmm. um, is you, you teach them concepts and you teach them how to apply those concepts to the operation of their sensory systems. So um, you help them acquire the concept of, say, a certain kind of neural activation in area V1 of the cerebral cortex. And then you say, you know, by the way, whenever you see red, that's, that's when you're in brain state 47. And at first, they uh, might have to do this in a very consciously inferential sort of way. Mm -hmm. um, you think about someone who's like learning wine tasting or they're learning other sorts of perceptual discriminations. And you're, you're trying to tell them like, you know, you didn't realize this, but you could taste tannic acid. Mm -hmm. and, and one of the main ways that you're discriminating um, is you're picking up on, on different levels of tannin. And there's certain things you might tell them to coach them, to help them acquire the sensitivity, <coughs> excuse me, and eventually you get them in a point where they're able to apply the concepts automatically mm -hmm. as a, a non-inferentially. So one sort of example that I use to illustrate this is uh, um, suppose, su suppose there was someone in a gorilla suit, mm -hmm. a really realistic, really convincing gorilla suit. And you have a hard time telling that that's a person in a gorilla suit as opposed to uh, an actual gorilla. But a friend of yours knows the difference and, and they direct your attention. They tell you which things to, to pay attention to. Um, at first you might believe that it's a person 
in a gorilla suit because you trust that per the other person. You, you trust the testimony of this relative expert. And you're like, okay, I believe it, even though I can't see it. But then they help train you. And now you're able to take this thing that was merely inferential, merely something that you believed on testimony. And now it's something you're able in a real sense uh, directly to uh, perceive. And, and what's happened is in a very sketchy course sense, all that's happened is you've learned how to apply those concepts automatically without having to go through a bunch of conscious or deliberate um, inference. So like right now with the, you know, you might think through and you're like, okay, well, what was it area V4 or was it area? Uh, yeah, it was area V4. What did he say? Brain state 40. Yeah. Brain state 47. That's what seeing red is. But later on, it just becomes automatic to you. And you're like, ah, there, there it is again. Old that old, uh, the old C fibers firing. Um, and then there's an interesting, interesting sorts of feedback loops that happen that once you are trained to pay close attention and apply these theoretical concepts in an automatic way, you open up new vistas of sensitivity. Right. You might, something that previously just seemed to you as homogenous um, or atomistic, you now see is actually uh, very complex. There's a lot of different pieces to it. You appreciate that those pieces uh, can be um, experienced them separately, where before you just kind of like experience them as, as a, a whole. I recently learned by watching one of my children's television shows. This is just a few weeks ago. I learned that I, that people can hear the difference between cold water and hot water by hearing. Mm -hmm. Like if you pour some really hot water into a, a glass versus some really cold water, you could hear the difference. Now, if you ask me ahead of time, can I do that? I would say, no, I can't do that. And no one can do that. But then they play this these two audio samples and they ask the audience like, well, get just, what do you think? Which one sounds hot? And sure enough, I could hear the difference. And at first I couldn't tell you what the difference is. Um, but I'm confident that if I listened to the, the tape over and over again, and, and maybe even had the assistance of someone who knew about the, the distinct acoustic properties, they could say, well, the, if you listen to the pitch, you'll appreciate that, that there's a higher pitch in the noises of the splashing water than the other one. I'm screwing up the example, I'm sure, but the, but you get the gist of it, that someone could um, in some sense reveal to me what was already there. Mm -hmm. In another sense, it wasn't there until after I had this, this conceptual stuff plugged in. But I think the best way of appreciating what's going on here is that's what, that's what introspection is. Introspection is when we um, conceive of what's happening anyway in a slightly different way, the, the introspective capacity is, uh, I'm being metaphorical now, but it's really just a software thing. It's not a hardware thing. Uh, you, in order to detect states of your brain, we don't have to add wires. It's connecting your brain to itself. It's already got all the connections. If you, if we were to give you a new sense, we would have to like staple a new organ to the front of your forehead or something like that. But to in, enhance your introspective capacities, we don't have to add anything to the hardware. We would just have to help you recalibrate or relabel stuff that you're already doing. All the, all the introspective discriminations we can make are, are parasitic upon first order discriminations in the world. Is that, is that right? 
So if we, if I sort of pay attention yeah. to what my experience is like, which paying attention to a brain state, the only resources I have for doing that are ones that I can deploy in making discriminations and perceptual discriminations in the world. Is, is that right? Is that what's implicit in the software idea? Yeah. I mean, I think that's a good first pass. I would want to add a little detail to that, right? So it's not all about the world. There's also things in your body, but mm-hmm. external to your nervous system. Um, but your, the brain is is not going to be able to, all the d- discriminations your brain is is going to be able to make about itself are going to be parasitic on discriminations that your brain is already able to make. And, and the introspective part is just relabeling. Could, um, it doesn't seem uh, impossible that there might be, that brain might have self-modeling system systems that model aspects of its own activity, like model aspects of attention, for instance, the way that Michael Graziano suggests. Um, I don't see why we should be limited to exteroception, exteroceptive discriminations here. I did try to cover myself a little bit and say this is a good first pass. <laughs> um, so there's a kind of there's a kind of claim I don't want to be committed to, mm-hmm. and this is a, a claim I see in people like, for example, Jesse Prince or uh, Peter Carruthers, mm-hmm. um, where they want to give a very strong empiricistic reading on on these sorts of claims, whereby there's these certain dedicated input channels, mm-hmm. um, there's certain special pipes. There's like the color pipe, there's the temperature pipe, there's these special input channels to the to the mind brain, and nothing else matters to consciousness. So any outputs um, or any endogenous activity, so like acting, that would be outputs, thinking, that would be endogenous. So like I start thinking about one thing and that reminds me about another thing, that reminds me about another thing. There's this very, very strong empiricism, which I reject, that would say the only things you could be aware of are, are things that somehow influence those input pipes. There's no, there's nothing that worth calling like an, an awareness of a non-sensory uh, or purely internally generated state. There's no kind of direct awareness of our output states. The only way you could be aware of your output states is if they have an influence on the input states. I reject that. Mm-hmm. So I, I do think that like any uh, any difference to the brain is a difference that um, could be registered intros- introspectively pretty much. So one way of putting it is um, there's a thing the, the neuroscientist Bernard Barr said once. He was giving a talk at um, uh, the CUNY Grad Center at, at David Rosenthal's Cognitive Science Group. And he said something like, every, every piece of cortex, for, for any, any state of the cortex, it could be trained uh, to, be, to come under voluntary control. Mm-hmm. And the reason that's true, according to him, at least at that time, is because of the way it's all connected. Mm-hmm. So that there's so much, con- like there's a supposition that voluntary control is located in a particular part of cortex and everything else in cortex is wired up to it with both feed forward and feedback connections. And so in theory, then any anything happening in cortex could be brought under voluntary control. 
I, a couple of years later, I got to talk to him and I asked him about that. I'm like, hey, Bernie, remember this thing you said? He's like, no, I don't. I'm like, well, I remember you saying this thing. He's like, huh. <laughs> uh, he's like, oh, maybe, I don't know. Um, it seemed plausible to me at the time. Uh, anyway, uh, the, so the basic idea is that um, anything that, um, I guess I would put it like this, anything that could uh, register on your ability to register anything, we could add on top of that a relabeling mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, in neural terms. You can learn to say, ah, there's that, there's that brain state again. Yeah. And, and I think that that's consistent with what I'm calling the kind of anti-empiricism mm -hmm. of, the, of the Carruthers, Prins sense of empiricism, where the only things that you have access to are very um, literally sensory. Right. right. I, I, so I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to put it in that very empiricistic way. I think mm -hmm. there's mm -hmm. some of it could be non-sensory in the sense that it's just reflecting um, endogenously triggered associations or something like that, or it could be top-down things. Right. It could be, there could be multi or non-modal things uh, happening in the brain. So things happening in the brain that aren't dedicated to any particular uh, sensory modality. Yep. That's fine with me. I think my point would still stand um, that, that that's what introspection is. Introspection is taking the discriminations you're already able to make and you're relabeling them as whatever. So some of the, so some of the interest, I mean, one way to put this basic point is like people have to learn introspection. Mm -hmm. No one, and, and they learn it after they learn how to, perceive things. <laughs> um, you, you don't start with a bunch of introspecting solipsists and then tell them like, Hey, guess what? There's an external world babies, <laughs> right? It's the other way around. <laughs> Later on, you tell them about the internal world. Um, and a lot of that just gets locked into place pretty easily mm -hmm. by this kind of relabeling or, or retraining. That's really good. Okay, Pete. Well, I, my, my the view of consciousness you've outlined there, it's, it's, it's one that I find very congenial, and uh, it's one that I've described, borrowing a term from Dan Dennett, as, as, as illusionism. Um, and by that I mean this, this idea of this intervening world of, of, of sensations, this determinate presentation, this picture painted with mental colors, that that's an illusion. That doesn't that exist. Now, I, I, I think you agree with me that it doesn't exist, but you... You're resistant to talking of it as an illusion. Now, maybe this is just just a terminological thing or presentational thing, but why do you think why do you resist talking of it as an illusion? Because doesn't it seem actually very potent and powerful, and it's something that really gets a grip on us in the way that illusions do? Yeah, so I, I think we do agree a lot, and there's pressure in philosophy to you know you got to stake out your own view. Like, what do we need you for, Mandic? We got Frankish. Um, so, but another part, uh, what I'm motivated by in, in not becoming a full mm -hmm. illusionist is, and maybe this doesn't matter between us, uh, mm -hmm. but some of the ways in which you present it is as a theory of consciousness. And the way that hits my ear is like this. 
everyone who's alive is conscious with the, you know, one or two sad exceptions, the living are, are, are conscious most of the time. And, uh, but I don't think everybody is under the sort of illusion that you're talking about. So whatever the, this story about illusions is good for, and I, I think it's good for a lot. I don't think it really uh, needs to figure into the theory of consciousness. If what you mean by the theory of consciousness is the theory of what's happening to all those people whenever they're conscious. Well, that's, that's nice. I, I think I, I, I agree with, with you there. The point of the term illusion is really to, there's a negative and a positive component. The negative component is we should reject that view of um, quality of world, world between us and the, and the, and the external world. Uh, but also to acknowledge that there are strong pressures towards adopting that view. Now, I don't think I'd want to say that it's a view that everyone, everyone has, that everyone is... Um, adopt and that being conscious just means adopting that view. But I do think there's something about the nature of consciousness itself uh, and about the nature of introspective capacities that makes that view very, very tempting, uh, certainly given a certain sort of theoretical priming, which we can give ourselves as, as children without having studied philosophy formally. Um, I suppose the point is to try and give acknowledgement to those who say this view is absolutely undeniable. I don't think it is undeniable. And I don't think everyone has it. I absolutely agree with you about that. But I think there's a way of tra training yourself uh, as a result of which it seems undeniable. And there's something about the nature of introspection and consciousness that does that. And so it's to try and acknowledge that, just as you were describing, you know, how it's, it's, it seems so powerfully to you that, that, that you're understanding German. Uh, so it's, it's, Part of it is, is public relations. It's to take off from the absurdity of saying, well, these things don't exist. You know, that, that sensation of blue, that which seems to you to be purely mental thing that is distinct from anything that's happening in your brain, that's, an, that's, that's, that's not true. Just dismiss it. I want to say, no, there's something, about, there's something happening there that strongly disposes you to make that judgment. Right. So it's to acknowledge, I suppose, the force of that. I, I do worry that's a little bit mis misleading, mm -hmm. not in the sense of you're being insufficiently careful or, or up to mm -hmm. some other kind of uh, epistemic vice, <laughs> but just, you know, the word illusion is very entrenched in these other sorts of uses, mm -hmm. for example, perceptual illusions. Yes. And a lot of times uh, perceptual illusions are due to the way every, like, for example, everybody that has a properly functioning visual system is going to be yeah. subject to these particular illusions. So there's certain kinds of emotion illusions. Yes. Um, so, you know, some, some people have argued that other sorts of illusions do depend on mm. your upbringing yeah. so that some people have claimed, I don't know if how convincing this is, but at least it's initially plausible that the Mueller liar illusion right. yes. depends on growing up in uh, an environment where there's a lot of right angles and, and, um, constructed environments if you grew up in the woods and you know you're just looking for berries in the trees you, you wouldn't be subject to the mural mueller liar illusion which has to do with inferring the presence of right angles from this stimulus that in some sense doesn't have any right angles in it but there's other sorts of illusions like motion illusions that really have to do with the distribution of mm. of um light sensitive uh 
cells, especially in the visual periphery, that the, these are loaded uh, or feed into motion detecting stuff. And this is really hardwired in. So there's a kind of claim to universalizability yeah. when, when you say like that this illusion, uh, this is an illusion. Um, in those sorts of cases, it's literally true as part of the nature of the perceptual system that people are prone to that illusion. The motion illusion falls out of the, the way just about everyone's visual system has to work. The nature of low-level visual perception. Now, is, is a, a similar thing going on with introspection? Mm -hmm. I'm inclined to think that the, 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 the way introspection works is the story I was telling about yeah. learnability that that there's not a hardwired dedicated introspection system mm -hmm. anyone that can talk can be taught to talk about themselves uh and that's basically what introspection is um there there's there might be some finer things to say about attention there might be certain things yeah. that you can attend to and certain granularities uh that, that you can and cannot attend to uh, um but but mostly uh I mean, I think that the so-called illusions of phenomenal consciousness aren't universal in, in a way that it makes me want to say mm -hmm. it's about the nature of introspection. I think the nature of introspection is very open-ended. And um, the, But there's a way of hearing you where I completely agree with you, that there is this thing about the way people are, or at least a lot of people are introspecting their their states that um, is leading them to to false views and they're being led to the false views because they were given false views from the get-go um garbage in garbage out uh i think we may we may have got to, to a possible uh, substantive disagreement that a possible preference for different routes here i mean another aspect to the use of the term illusion that i i picked up without properly distinguishing it um from from uh dan dannett is this this idea of a user illusion which i which is the idea that that we do have some kind of self-modeling, self-monitoring systems for public relations purposes, um, so that we can talk about how we're being affected by the world, um, and not just what we're the content of what we're experiencing, but what effect it's having on us, what significance it's having for us, how it's a you know, the whole raft of reactions that that um that stimuli are provoking in us which is very useful for, for social creatures like us to tell other people that you know that not just that that's uh a certain kind of berry but that you know it's it's tastes horrible and that we also use then uh, in uh, in our um, communication with ourselves and uh, uh, through in the speech and so i think there may be I'm not sure that it actually requires something more substantive in the way of introspective mechanisms than you propose, but it tends that way. And that may be, I mean, maybe we can get what, everything that Dennett wants to say about user illusions from your story, from, uh, you know, the user illusion can be wholly softwired. Um, I don't know. I really don't know. But that may be, there's another strand to the illusion talk there, which which, which we might want to to disagree a little on, but I, I, it, it seems to me pretty much an, you know, an empirical question. Yeah, I mean, one thing that I'm skeptical about, but I think would be an empirical question, is the sort of is um, the uniform, like how much uniformity is there in, in what people say about, for example, Mary, the colorblind 
scientists or inverted spectra, et cetera. Um, your view that there's something systematic, does would that lead to a lot of uniformity across those cases? And would it be um, a problem if it turns, for your view, if it turns out there's actually a diversity of opinions there? Uh, I'm inclined to think that people are all over the place um, it, and that there really is a kind of a beetle, uh, Wittgenstein beetle in the box. Like uh, people are all using the same word beetle. Um, but there's such a diversity of what they individually think they mean by that, that it's kind of hard to pin on them that they all share the same illusion. Yeah. I'm, so, for example, I, I mean, I'm, I'm inclined to think that, um, take, for example, the Mary, the Mary case. Um, I think what's driving people's reactions to the Mary case, and, and, and those are the, the people that find it convincing uh, as raising a problem for physicalism. There's a, a, a part of it is a real dopey view about knowledge that is conditioned by a, like a, just a kind of a dumb uh, way of digesting Descartes, which is the mind is a room. If you're, if something is in the room with you, then you know, it's there because there's nothing in between you and it things outside of the room. Like, gosh, I mean, it's an opaque barrier, the veil between me and the rest of reality. I got no idea what's going on out there. Maybe there's a demon out there, but if it's in the room, then I know it. I mean, that's just, if you try to put any empirical, uh, meat on on that suggestion that just seems like a completely idiotic epistemology but there's another thing that's going on too i think a lot of people are tacitly um buying into a kind of a, a humean um theory of ideas where you've got complex ideas and simple ideas the complex ideas are made out of the simple ideas the mary example works because you're using the color red and people have this tacit acceptance of this view that says something like, well, red is simple. Red is atomic. There's no components. There's no component ideas out of which you could make the idea of red. And so Mary doesn't have the ingredients. If instead of red, it was a shade of gray, or you cook the whole thing up so it looks more like a human's missing shade of blue. She was in a room that had dark blue stripes and light blue stripes instead of black and white. And then instead of red, we just ask about Hume's missing shade. Would, would Mary, in having all of those past experiences, plus all the physical facts, would she know ahead of time what it's like to see the missing shade of blue? I think a lot of people say, yeah, of course. Yeah. And, and Which, by the way, it's, an, it's actually an, uh, an empirical question, whether the mind works that way. Mm -hmm. But I think a lot of people assume that it does. They assume some kind of compositionality that you could build the idea of the missing shade of blue out of the components that you already have. Mm -hmm. I, th I think actually there's some truth to that, but that's an empirical thing, not anything we're entitled to a priori. Um, and also, also, you know, <laughs> the story about red might be that it's not, it's not atomic. It's actually complex. If uh, people are, find it natural, because a lot of them are taught about color mixing in school where um, in those color mixing schemes, red is a primary color out of which you make yellow and orange, but there's actually other color mixing schemes relative to which, um, red is a secondary color and you can mix red out of yellow and magenta. Yeah. 
And I, I bet if you cooked up the whole room in terms of, uh, instead of a black and white room, it's a yellow and magenta room. And then you ask people if Mary could know ahead of time uh, what it's like to see red, they would say, yeah. So I think there's bad theories here um, the, in the, that, are, that are guiding this. There's specific mm -hmm. examples we get hyper-focused on. If instead of talking about phenomenal red, we're trying to talk about phenomenal distance yeah. or phenomenal triangularity, a lot of this stuff wouldn't stand up at all. Um, and so there's a sense in which like, yeah, I'm an illusionist and there's really no interesting differences between me and you. Um, but I, I would tell a slightly different story about when people are going wrong, why they're going wrong. Um, and I wouldn't be inclined to say what's going on there is like, it's the nature of introspection. No, I, I, my visual stories that there's a spectrum of positions here from just you know so just plain sort of theoretical error through to something much more hardwired and the, the, the question is you know where do we located on that spectrum and and so one of the reasons for articulating the position as that is that it opens up the spectrum and then we can we can we, we can ask where we want to be on it from a side where you know we really really do want to talk about it, illusion to where we just want to talk about something more like a uh, an error people can be quite easily induced to make so it's yeah it's 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 more a matter of uh, of uh, presentation i think oh, pete we've talked for uh, a very long time and i could go on talking to you I, I, I had a bunch more questions i wanted to ask but we're running out of time so uh to wrap up they well look i was going to ask you about where you see consciousness studies going in the next in the next few years the next 10 years the next decade that's perhaps too bigger question given uh, uh limits on time so let me ask I you do have a, i could i could i have a brief and quick oh, answer for that for though it, yeah um i think that we're going to cross assuming we survive <laughs> assuming we survive uh i think we're going to be crossing a threshold really soon with respect to artificial intelligence right in which people um are going to be exposed to things that are obviously machines yeah but able to argue their own case yes and, and, and once we have real hands-on experience with, with these things that are saying like commander data from Star Trek, I'm conscious. Yes. Quit hurting me or I'm going to kick your ass. Yeah. Um, you know, once we have that kind of like just practical demonstration of the, that these things who are internally in a lot of ways different from us are externally just like us, um, it's going to, it's going to drop away and, and, um, it's not going to be an argument. It's just going to be practical experience. People are just going to get comfortable with attributing consciousness uh, to those systems. So we're going to see that the third person perspective is really the only one that that, that enables us to to interact with with, with AIs. It's the only one that really enables us to interact with each other, I suppose. So we're going that, that yeah. perspective is just going to seem much more natural, much more compelling, and the idea that there's some mysterious essence that that is missed out is going yeah to and a similar sort out. of prediction which is ultimately like there's going to be a practical there's going to be a change in our practical culture yeah uh the, the because of technology uh another one is that we're gonna have a lot more brain interface type things maybe they won't involve surgery it'll just be stuff you you, you put on a hat and now you you can hook your brain up directly to your phone um we already have these. There's these meditation headbands you could purchase for like two or three hundred dollars uh, that that tracks your your uh, brain waves and is plugged into a mindfulness application. And um, so this technology is already in existence, and we'll have finer grain versions of that. And people will just become very 
comfortable with the idea that it's your brain. Right. And it's just your brain. It's not that your brain is correlated with non-physical right. phenomenal property. It's just your brain. They'll get just, it'll become natural. This is another side, another whole side to your work. Um, you, you, I know you've written about post-human existence, about where technology might take the human species. We'll have to talk about that another time. Um, uh, and I hope there will be another time soon. Just to finish off with Pete, what can we expect from you in the next few years? What's what, what's coming? What's uh, uh, have you got important projects? Is there a, uh, new books coming? Yeah, so there's a there's a book project that I've been working on and off uh, for I don't know maybe a decade. Um, that's about this futuristic mm-hmm. sort of stuff. Um, some of it is about taking science fiction scenarios. Some of it is is looking at things from actual technology. Some of it is speculations about the near future and really looking at our concepts of the mind, concepts of intelligence, concepts of conscious experience in these um, alternate scenarios. So, you know, uh, what happens to our, what happens to our sense of self or our sense of what, what it means to have a conscious experience if we were to imagine having the technological ability to modulate our brains at whim. So if you had like sliders and you could like give yourself a lot of mirth or give your like, you're like, I need a lot of willpower to make it through this day. And so you just crank the willpower slider up and, and working through the consequences of that. And, and um, I think you get real interesting insights from thinking about the ways in which we are limited and how much breaking through the limitations actually would suck and create problems uh, that maybe we wouldn't want to wish upon ourselves. Um, so anyways, it's a, it's a project kind of about the, the future of the mind. So that's, that's terrific. I know. That's the thing waiting in the future. And then one other thing, uh, and this is very much um, in the early stages, but uh, I do have an interest in meditation. And, and one thing I would like to take on uh, hopefully within the decade is, uh, is what would consciousness have to be from like an analytic philosophy of mind perspective what would consciousness have to be for the main claims people making about meditation to be true so i I, you know there's there's thousands of years of of philosophy about um meditation in indian and, and other east asian philosophical traditions um the stuff that i've seen showing up in english language uh philosophy I have found unsatisfactory. It hasn't mostly because people have the b- uh, bad views about consciousness. So I'd like to see meditation treated in a, just a good illusionist sort of way, I'd like to explain what's going on there that doesn't bring uh, non-physical spooky stuff. That sounds terrific, Pete. And will you be right? Will this writing be also for a popular, for a wider audience, not just for fellow philosophers? I, uh, yeah, more and more, I think that's the only way to write. Yes. Yes. I uh, just, you know, it's the way I think about it is imagine making music that can only be appreciated by people that also have PhDs in music. Exactly. Like, why would you do that? So look, you, you talk, you talked about, about Asimov and, and Sagan and so on. So the young kids of the future, they're going to be reading Mandic and he's going to be Sagan. Yeah, I'll have a TV right. show and there'll be some little kid recording my show with their brain implants 
I'm serious. This, this, this should be happening because I think you've got to, we talked about how things hang together. I think you, you, the way you see things hang together, I think you've got, you've, you've got a picture that's compelling and wonderful and inspiring. And so I, I do want the, the young kids bring this because this, some people seem to think that a physicalist, naturalist perspective somehow takes the wonder out of things. It does exactly the opposite in my view. I agree. The wonder of the physical world is, is just astounding. That's something Sagan taught, isn't it? I hope you keep spreading the message. Thank you so much, Keith. Thank you. It was a great pleasure to talk to you.